It's taken me a long time to learn that when you put yourself first, you actually are putting everybody else first. That is so anathema to the way that I was wired. But when you're not taking care of yourself, you haven't, you know, we say in Al-Anon that if you're upset about something and you want to take an action that could possibly not be a great contribution to your future self, stop, halt. The reason we forgive people, forget about it, but he owes me this, but he did. We forgive others not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we deserve peace. And also, I think that when we don't forgive our parents, forget molestation and you know actual crimes that were committed, but just this like, I grew up in a way and I was never taught about this and, and I never got love from my dad and this and that. Like, if you're not forgiving your parents, I think at this point, you're a bully. It's really soothing to just be able to believe everyone, to just believe what I, like no one's kissing your ass, no one, like it's just great. Everything you guys just did, whether I liked it or not, is true. And that is like the best feeling in the world, but you also have to tell the truth. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My guest today needs very little introduction. Whitney Cummings is an uber successful stand-up comedian. She's a writer, she's an actor, a producer, and host of the Good For You podcast. You most likely know her from one of her five hilarious stand-up specials, perhaps her sitcom entitled Whitney, or as the co-creator of Two Broke Girls, which ran on CBS for six seasons. But underappreciated, underrecognized when it comes to Whitney is her seemingly endless wisdom and endless passion when it comes to mental health. Earned through confronting and working through a past marked with anxiety and a codependency disorder, both of which she chronicles with frank wit and humor in her book, I'm Fine and Other Lies. So no surprise, this conversation at times hilarious and perhaps somewhat a bit meandering in a good way, centers on mental health. We discuss codependency at length, what it is and what it isn't. We talk about building self-esteem and confidence. We discuss how to navigate relationships. We talk about healing from childhood trauma. And we also discuss animal welfare, equestrian therapy, and just tons more. Whitney is a blast. It was super fun having her here. Her energy and her humor are infectious. And in a surprising mid-episode revelation, it turns out that we actually have way more in common than I originally thought. So before we get into it, a few words from the sponsors that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, 
the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. 
Okay, I truly hope you enjoy this exploration inside the life, inside the mind of the truly unique and singular Whitney Cummings. Nice to have you here. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I thought maybe it might not happen today. <laughs> it did happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. It's, so Don't apologize. No, life happens. This man. will set, you know? I, I figured if anyone would understand, it would be you that, you know, when people show up to your podcast, you want them to be mentally 100%. Sure. You're brilliant. I'm a fan of yours. Oh, I didn't want to bomb this and embarrass myself. And so I had a thing where I didn't sleep optimally. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to explain optimal sleep to you? Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in that subject matter. The reason yeah. I'm late for your podcast is because I listened to your podcast yeah. and I was told, you know, that um, you know, getting a quality of sleep uh, in order to be optimal is huge for me because I realized the source of so many of the decisions I'm not proud of or the work I'm not proud of is I knew I was tired and I was like, I'll just white knuckle through it. When in reality, mm-hmm. if I just slept eight hours, I could have yeah, got- Yeah, you're a big napper too. You can huge do Huge napper. I actually try to break my days up into two days because I perform at night and it's mm-hmm. a way to trick myself uh, into thinking that the career choice I made is actually somewhat healthy. So I try to sleep every day from like four to five and mm-hmm. break my day up into two days. And when you get up at five, how long does it take for you to shake off the grogginess and feel like you're yourself again? See, that that's the problem with me. If I go down like that, mm-hmm. when I wake up, I'm just like, whoa. I hear that a lot. Do you, Would you ever have like a little coffee or a little tea or something after? Then I would be concerned that I wouldn't sleep. be able to sleep when I got home mm-hmm. at night. Like I try to only drink coffee in the morning, although I'm having a, a little bit of coffee right now because I'm not used to doing podcasts this late in oh the day, <laughs> which is fine. It's good. But yeah, I try to limit limit my caffeine intake to the morning. Interesting. Is there anything else that can perk you up? Like sometimes if I don't wanna do tea or coffee or something that I think is gonna sabotage me for my night's sleep, I'll sometimes just inhale a little bit of pine oil, sometimes mm. clove oil, and if you just, it really wakes you up. Oh, wow, I've never heard of that. There's also, I was just that. on Joe Rogan, and of course he's got the newest of the new. They're like smelling salts that are called ah. <laughs> for just like consumer use, not for like waking somebody up who's like unconscious. <laughs> I think that's what it's meant for, but uh-huh. this is meant for like to get like, like a- Medical quick- grade smelling salts, <laughs> just for like, if you need a little pick me up. Exactly. Yeah. And there, I mean, it hurts. It's like, you you feel like you're drowning for a second and then you just have like a bunch of energy. I'm not sure if it's just the adrenaline that it naturally triggers or the fear that you're about to die. I don't know what. Right. Yeah, I don't know if uh, that would be a high recommend. You could try it. <laughs> yeah, you yes. could try the packaging. I'll try anything once. It's like brought to you by the guys who made the five-hour energy drink shots that are in Seven right. Eleven. The packaging would need to, yeah, sort of get more sophisticated. I yeah. think. What if we just both did that right now? This might go off the rails. I love it. it. Do you feel a sense of excitement or a sense of frustration because you are so routinized? Does this feel weird or annoying? No, it's fine. I can I can roll with it. Fine. But I mean, listen, in the, you know, kind of panoply of like dysfunctions, like a lot of mine line up with yours. So <laughs> things like control or perfectionism, and this is the way it needs to happen, like all of that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. I've had a lot of growth around that, but still it kind of like, it creeps up like, oh, it's supposed to go this way. It's not going this way, mm-hmm. you know, but my ability to kind of snap back and, and you know, deal with that kind of stuff is a lot better than it used to be. Totally, because I think that um, it's taken me a long time 
to, and I've, you know, as you know, been in um, a 12-step program called Al-Anon ACA, uh, CODA as well. Um, it's taken me a long time to learn that when you put yourself first, you actually are putting everybody else first. Mm -hmm. That is so anathema to the way that I was wired. Yeah, and too. I think most people are, but when, you know, you're not taking care of yourself, you haven't, you know, we say in Al-Anon that, if you're upset about something and you wanna take an action that could possibly not be a great contribution to your future self, stop, halt. Are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Mm -hmm. And if you're any of those things, you're not gonna be optimal. Your inner child's gonna be running the show and then you're gonna have shame afterwards, you know, and it's gonna corrode your self-esteem. So you're like, I didn't do that good of a job. Why didn't I just ask to reschedule it? Why did I do that? He didn't want me to come on his podcast, brain dead. That's so disrespectful to him, you know? So right. for me, just know that well, there's I, a, it was out of respect for you. No, that I get, I, listen, I get I it. I'm t I, I, totally, <laughs> I totally get it. I'm just happy that you're here. I mean, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired thing is also uh, a core tenet of AA mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I think about that a lot, but I think in the, in the sort of codependency parlance, there's a strain of like narcissism that runs through it. Like the whole world revolves around like, you and what you're doing. And it's like, oh, if I cancel, like he'll be devastated or, you know, the, the world will stop spinning on its axis. Like there's a weird outsized ego piece to that, yeah. that you get, that gets missed until you really start to deconstruct it. Well, cause it also, you know, sometimes you just have to parse it out. You know, I think in metaphors a lot and visuals, that's just how my brain works. Because if I start talking too much about something, I start going, why are you using those big words? Like, why are you trying to impress them? And then I get my ADD takes mm -hmm. over a little bit. So something with that, you know, that has really helped me is a couple adages. Like my brain really takes an, a corny aphorism and just run, and does very well with it. And I think that because that's a big part of, you know, 12 step recovery programs, cause our brains want to overcomplicate everything. Mm -hmm. So when someone just distills something down of, it works if you work it and you're worth it. Kind of rhymes, that stuff really works for me. Yeah, you it's know? annoying, but it does It's work. so annoying. And if you're trying to give someone a tool like that, who is not yet in the program, it just comes off dismissive, Yeah, you know, and rude and I'm better than you. But when you're sort of in it and really just need something to grab onto, like a refrain to almost like you're singing a song in your head, whether it's like uh, the people that don't matter, don't mind. And the people that mind that don't matter. That's true. and something that is an alliteration. I don't know, it just works better for me mm -hmm. for whatever reason. But in terms of the living out of obligation, I have to go to this thing and then I have to go to this thing. And if I don't go to this party, if this baby shower from someone I haven't even seen in 15 years. And then you also kind of hate yourself because you don't, you know, let's say you have low self-esteem. I have to go or they'll be mad at me. That kind of, like it, sort of um, masquerades as low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. But what you're actually saying is like, if I don't go, they'll just cancel the party, right? you know? So which is it? Are you insecure or are you a malignant narcissist? Well, there's a weird thing. I've said this many times before, at least with alcoholics, I don't know how this shows up or presents in, in, a, in a codependent person, but this ability to simultaneously harbor this sense that you're a total piece of shit and, and the most worthless person on earth and you're just smarter and better and, mm -hmm. than everybody else. Yes, and you can, you can simultaneously harbor those mm -hmm. two identities within you. So, so those both like kind of come into play in that thing. Like I've had a huge issue with that. And that goes to, it, it really goes to boundaries as well, like mm -hmm. boundaries for yourself and boundaries for other people. But that idea, yeah, like I have to say yes to everything is a big indicator of low self-esteem, but also of 
you know, huge aggrandizement of self. So yes, so it helped me when I heard the uh, sort of codependent 101 is I'm a piece of shit in the center of the universe. Right. And I think that with self-esteem is something people talk about a lot. And this is, this is something that nettles me quite a bit because maybe it's just my comedian brain. Nettles. Nettles me, like what? <laughs> no. I like that word, go ahead. Um, and uh, because it doesn't make me angry. It just, it frustrates me when someone is so close to having the life they want, but there's just something that they they are perseverating about or can't seem to solve, which, you know, to me a big one is how do you develop self-esteem? You know, and that's something that, you know, I don't describe myself as someone that has or began my life with a tremendous amount of self-esteem, but I do have a tremendous amount of confidence. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that seems confusing to people. So mm-hmm. when you look at someone who's really confident, it doesn't mean they have, you know, uh, uh, good self-esteem healthy for themselves, self-regard. healthy self-regard yeah. at all, because you could have developed that confidence because you're so insecure that you're such a piece of garbage that you had to, you know, develop the ability to perform, the ability to contain a room, the ability to beguile people and distract people, and you know, and brag about yourself and get good at something. Mm-hmm. So I had confidence for a long time, so I would conflate it with self-esteem because I'd be like, wait a second, how could I have low self-esteem? Like I'm, you know, like really aggressively, you know, I'm the captain of my basketball team and I'm like, you know, performing and I'm in acting classes and I'm doing monologues in front. Like I'm clearly not shy, but in my personal life, there was this very corroded soul of very low Mm self-worth. And if we want to talk about why we can, but something I have learned is that in the amount of time you complain about having low self-esteem and the amount of time you complain about how low your self-worth is, you could have done something to build your own self-esteem or self-worth. It's about building your own self-esteem by engaging in esteemable actions. So if you've looked at 15 memes today about love yourself, self-worth, like, I mean, that I think that there's like a big confusion about how it's actually Well, because it's a verb. It only shows up through taking action mm-hmm. and 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 really those actions generally need to be on behalf of the self so you can develop that unconditional mm-hmm. level of healthy self-regard yeah. that isn't contingent upon how good of a performer you are or you do it selflessly on behalf of another person. And through repetition of that type of behavior where you get to a point where it's habitual, that's how you develop it over time. So I think the distinction between confidence and self-esteem lies in confidence can be, you know, a limited specific skill-based thing. Like you have confidence as a performer, mm-hmm. but how much of your, you know, decision to invest yourself in being a performer is really compensating for your low self-esteem so you can wear it like a mask and feel confident in that regard, but when your when your head hits the pillow at night, you're like yeah, I did that thing, but like they probably could see through it or, mm-hmm. you know, they know that I'm not worth anything or any of like all of that starts to. But that's not your up. voice. Whose voice is that? You know, it's, I think to me, and I was just listening to your podcast about the long path mindset, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it just, it made me so, I was just so excited because I've um, been on this, you know, uncovering like family ancestry stuff, what I inherited, what guilt and shame isn't mine, what paranoia isn't mine, what anxiety is is mine and mm-hmm. isn't mine. And what did I inherit? That's actually secretly an incredible gift that made me a superhero that I should stop complaining about mm-hmm. and just alchemize it into money or whatever. And I think that once I switch that mindset of I didn't get this, I didn't get this, I only focus on what I did get. Cause the other, one didn't work for me very well. It did when I entered into a 12 step program and started doing the steps and writing out 
I remember in the amends chapter where you write all the people you owe amends to. Uh -huh. So in AA, it usually looks something like, I stole this guy's car, I gotta apologize. I stole this guy's drugs, I have to apologize. I cheated on this girlfriend, I gotta go to apologize. You know, um, ours are, you know, slightly different, our amends. You know, our amends are usually like, no one owes me any apologies. Here are the ones, the here. I don't owe anyone apologies. Mm -hmm. Here's who I think owes me an apology. Right. That's how we go into it. Well, alcoholics go into it with that mindset as well. The steps are a way of disabusing people yeah. <laughs> of that idea. Like, and we abuse you, ourselves. You, you're a victim. Like, I got wronged by all these people, and you know, you, you have to like go through the steps to understand and identify your how you participated in all of those well, things that went. I wrong. got wronged by all these people, so I did the obvious thing and started to just wrong myself. Right. I just- Codependency is different because you're looking towards family ancestry. And when you're a child, obviously you don't have culpability for mm -hmm. you know however you were treated. Totally. And then the way that basically, a, a couple things that I think might just be helpful in terms of like people saying, what is codependence? Because I think a lot of people think of it as like, oh, people who just spend a lot of time together, the mm -hmm. guy and the girl who just like won't stop hanging out. You know, It's usually um, defined a couple ways that really help me. Number one, uh, the inability to, in, to tolerate the discomfort of others or perceived discomfort of others, right? Check, check I, over check, here. Check, check. <laughs> I never thought of myself as a codependent, but the more I learn about it, I was like, oh, I, I'm completely you know, diagnosable as this, but keep going. Anyone who's not a psychopath has some level of codependence. Mm. And I think that the one of the most powerful things that I did was really study history. That's a really cool thing. When if you wanna sort of get in touch with uh, your understanding of what your addictions are, whether it's gambling, as we know, gambling doesn't always have to be with actual chips and money, uh, shoplifting, what's that? And alcoholism also, took me a second to understand because I didn't see a lot of alcohol around me when I was a kid. I because it was all secret. It was furtive, mm -hmm. you know, it was in uh different, it was in a Diet Coke can, it was in a coffee cup. And that wasn't really my experience. I would see my mom drink glasses of wine. I just thought we were rich. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't understand what was happening. I just thought like, oh at eight o'clock, like you make dinner and pour a glass of wine and make sure she gets in bed okay. Like there, the life was going fine, you know, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But um, a couple other things is that number one, in order for alcoholism to be present, alcohol doesn't have to be present. So alcoholism is, you know, defined by any, you know, engaging in something uh, despite negative consequences, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether it's over-organizing, um, you know, cheating, sex addiction, love addiction, uh, obsession with things being clean and presence. There was a lot in my home, a lot of neuroses about gifts for other people. We're going to a party, you have to bring a gift. What can we wrap up from around the house? We can't use that tissue paper. You know I'm in recovery because I gave you a gift today with no right. tissue paper. <laughs> That is but I codependent see, recovery. But, but I see uh, the healthy aspect of that is like you, you, you didn't have to be perfect about it. Oh no. Yeah. I thought that was perfect. Right. It was perfect. See? Yeah. I was like perfectly authentic in what it was because the old way that my stinking thinking would be is to be like, I can't, I have to stop by the papyrus and store and he likes to run and be outside. So let me get him a card with a runner on it. And then I'm going to get the tissue paper, right. the, the, the green to match his chair. Like I was just. For what? Insanity. Because I didn't think I was enough. Mm -hmm. I had to lead with something of value because mm -hmm. that's how little value I thought right, I had. Right, because you just showing up without any of that would be inadequate. Or, let's get even darker. I wanted you to like me. I wanted you to think I was a nice person and I was trying to manipulate one of the smartest people that I look up to. Mm. So See, a lot that, of it's that. That was manipulative though. That, yes, totally. <laughs> Can you just give me <laughs> yeah. th that back? So that I'll take it, that it's not, thank you. No <laughs> but, uh, so that's the other thing about you know codependence is that there's a little bit of a like, mm, those people just seem like depressed, whiny, boring nerds and you know, whatever. So 
all the stuff that alcoholics do. I mean, again, let's just say with substances or people and narcotics, whatever. And um, they share and they're like, oh, I got in this car crash because I was drunk driving. Or uh, mm -hmm. I climbed into my girlfriend's window because I did meth and I thought she was cheating and then I fell off and I got arrested. And then Al-Anon's and codependents sit in the back of the room of like a double winners and we're like, we do that sober. Right. Like we do all the same insane behaviors. And you can't, just, you can't get an out or point to the substance as the excuse. Well, for us, it's the internal drug cabinet. It's the adrenaline, the cortisol and the hit that we get from chaos. So some of it, of course, is gonna be epigenetic imprinting in utero, whatever mm -hmm. chemicals that your mother was emitting in utero was getting you addicted to those chemicals, you know, the same way you would be addicted to opioids and, you know, in Appalachia if you were, you know, in the tummy of a mother that was taking opiates. Thanks, Purdue. Um, I have umbrella insurance, mm -hmm. so I can say that. Um, <laughs> do you have personal liability insurance? I don't know. You might Probably. want to get it if you have me on your show. Yeah. Um, and um, so yeah. epigenetically, you can come out of the womb addicted to chaos and drama, uh, like right out of the gate, as if you were a crack baby, you know, mom was addicted to crack, whatever it is. So even as a child, I was like subconsciously always like trying to get on the moving escalator. I was just always trying to like getting in the knives, like whatever I could um, to get that adrenaline because mm -hmm. adrenaline turns into dopamine. So a lot mm -hmm. of us don't even understand how addicted to adrenaline we are and how we put ourselves in situations that's gonna get us that hit, whether it's that toxic yeah. relationship, that job we hate. It might even be being a you know fan of a football team that sometimes wins, sometimes doesn't. I love them because sometimes I'll be mad and sometimes I'll be happy, but like at least I know I'm gonna get that hit of yeah, adrenaline. Yeah, you feel alive. You feel right? alive. And that's the big thing when you get sober, you just think your life, because you're gonna, you're gonna crunch that curve down and you're not gonna have the high highs and the low lows. So you just think, well, life's gonna suck. And it really, you know, basically is like a mirror for how much were captured by those swings. And you know? this also might be something that was a train that left the station 200 years ago and it really behooved your ancestors to behave like this. And now it just doesn't right. behoove you. So now you just have a bunch of tools in your toolbox that you're using. Like, and I think it's just about updating your software. It's just about going from, you know, 1.0 to 2.0. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't need these tools anymore. Wait, actually, even though I developed this tool to uh, calm down my mom who was screaming, for example, like that worked really well. It doesn't work, you know, but it might work well for this other thing if I just tweak it. Like, I think that when we look back at our child and they're like, oh, that was trash, that was a nightmare, it broke me. I believe that anyone that's grown up in, you know, adversity, dysfunction, I maybe towards the end of the podcast can make my case of people that were raised in quote, perfect homes are the craziest people I know. Mm -hmm. um, but all We'll put a pin on that <laughs> to come back to it. Well, here's the thing, all my friends that grew up in these homes that I was so jealous of when I was a kid, I was like, this is like Mayberry. It's like their mom is here, their dad is here. They have like picnic blankets and stuff. 40 years later, they're like, oh, my dad had a secret wife in, Canada, right. in Pensacola. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I did, I, I told you I there was a catch. <laughs> More often than not, yeah. Um, but, or you get this other form of quote, let's say, just say trauma. I know it's a very trendy word right now, but that you saw a quote, perfect couple that loved each other. And then, so now you can't pair bond with other people because you're comparing it to your, mm -hmm. the parents that you saw, mm -hmm. it was super copacetic. So mm -hmm. I do see a lot of people who are just like, I don't know, I want what my parents have. It's like, that's not possible anymore. That was possible before phones and computers and Facebook. Yeah, but this idea of really getting a, a, a broader picture of, of your heritage, like back to the long path idea, um, is a much healthier way of thinking about your parents, I mean, it's just, you gotta let go of the resentment, right? Like you gotta have to, you have to, you have to forgive, you have to, you know, sort of 
step into uh, a sensibility of grace with that. And, and, you know, that's the kind of building block to what you just described, which is like regarding them as, you know, doing the best they can and giving you these superpowers that you have and understanding that they were playing out narratives and behavior patterns that they inherited and they were trying to do the best that they can. And it allows you to just kind of breathe a little bit easier about the whole thing mm -hmm. rather than just grinding on a resentment over and over and over again and then perpetuating the same unhealthy behavior pattern time and, and think, time again. And I think a lot of people don't understand. It took me a minute too, cause it was like, you know, didn't really compute that when you have a resentment against someone else, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person yeah, to you're, die. You're harming yourself. You're harming yourself. It's actually selfish to forgive people. And the reason we forgive people, forget about it, but he owes me this, but he did. We forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because we deserve peace. Mm -hmm. And also, I think that when we don't forgive our parents, forget molestation and, you know, actual crimes that were committed, but just this like, I grew up in a way and I was never taught about this and, da, 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 and I never got love from my dad and this and that. Like, if you're not forgiving your parents, I think at this point, you're a bully. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I used to really revolve my life around my bad childhood. It was my thing, it was my brand. I could trauma bond with people. I was able to kind of control people because they felt bad for me. I was able to blame that when I was making irresponsible, selfish, childish choices. And when I realized like, you really got to call yourself out. You got to tell on yourself. Mm -hmm. And what I do in my program is a lot of like checking your motives, you know, like what you said before. Like I had to go, okay, I'm going to bring this gift, which is a re gift, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, no secrets, yeah. no lie. I can't, I, I appreciate the honesty. I can't, I can't carry secrets. <laughs> I don't. It's um, life gets so much better when you stop having secrets. Oh. You have so much more energy. You don't have to like remember what you said last time. Um, and, uh, there's an exercise that an organization does, not Scientology, but it's sort of like a kind of a 12 step like boot camp thing that asks everybody in the audience on their first group meeting, they say like, how many of you are you mad at your parents? And everybody raises their hand. Right. And then they go, um, what if I told you that your parents' only job was to keep you alive? How'd they do? Mm. And everyone's like, Maybe that's too extreme, but it is just a different way to change your perception. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, in Al-Anon, you know, CODA, the same thing of, it is a disease of perception, right? I have a disease where I see things in a way that really helped me stay calm as a child. You know, my dad didn't come home. Well, I'm an ugly, stupid idiot and I got to be in my report card. Of course, he's going to come home. That worked for me at the time. Mm -hmm. that, so, because if we say, oh, well, my dad, you know, just doesn't, like is irresponsible, like you, a child can't handle that. Sure. So you have to blame yourself because it's just kind of an easy, you can control it. Well, that was my fault. So if I just achieve more next time, he will come home. And we stay, and it's not true. It's doing mm -hmm. the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and sanity 101, you know, but there's a point where I think I realized that the more responsibility I took for my own bad choices, tricky thoughts, judgmental thoughts, um, uh, instinct to gossip, mm -hmm. just loving it. Um, the more miserable my life was, like when I decided on this like radical accountability, zero blame, my life got so much better. Mm. And if you really study, if you're mad at your parents, you just don't know enough about history. Study the region they came from, study their ancestors, study where they came from, study, all of this, you know, it's like, and also look at your phobias. You know, when you see like people that are like, you know, histrionic about worms or snakes or bugs or stuff like that, I'm kind of just like something happened. Sure. 
in your, you got that somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, whether it was your great, great grandfather fell off a cliff, your family's clumsy and you should know this, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? The more that I steep myself in all of these worlds, the more clear it is that almost everything tracks back to childhood trauma. Like I had this guy, Paul Conti in here recently, that episode hasn't gone up yet, but like, oh, you would love this guy. Oh, like he's sorry. like this, you know, world leading expert on, on trauma or, or like Gabor Mate, like all of these things, like what gets imprinted on you at a very early age becomes the dictator of basically all of your, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And then developing an understanding of that to untangle the, the behavior patterns that no longer serve you becomes like this life work, you yeah. know, that, that yeah. a lot of people never stumble upon because they never reach a pain point or an inflection point that is dramatic enough to get them to shift. So I think a lot of people are just operating, you know, in a low grade level of semi unawareness that's driving so many of the behavior patterns that are leading their lives astray or preventing them from kind of, you know, optimizing who they are. I completely agree. And I also see a little bit of this self-obsession with people's trauma, where it's like, I just wanna talk about it and re-embed it. Well, it and becomes I, an identity and, and that's its own victimhood. And yeah. I wanna, I want this to define me. I want everyone to know about it. I wanna be viewed by the world as a victim because then I can control people. It's a way, you know, it's a survival mm -hmm. mechanism to stay safe. But for me, it, about five, six years ago, I stopped being like overly sharing you know, with the stuff that happened to me because I would go and then this happened and people go, oh no. Like, and then you get feedback from what is entertaining to other people or mm -hmm. engaging about other people or makes them in your mind like you more. So I find myself, you know, uh, really resisting sharing about that all the time because I also think there's a matter of like, once you solve a problem, like it also, you can solve things privately and then you can do yeah. like living amends. You don't have to tell everyone about everything all the time. It's a way to um, ensure that in the future you're gonna Or just shame. making sure that when you're sharing about it, it's more about solution than Correct. the drama of the facts of the experience. Are you right? just sharing it with strangers? Right. Or are you being of service to other people who you talking about it to them will help them? Yeah, but it is empowering to talk about these things and give voice to it, which is, you know, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you here because you're so open about this. And I think it gives, you know, people who are watching or listening permission to be a little bit more reflective yes. about their own histories yes. and maybe realize there's something there that they weren't looking at mm -hmm. and that it's okay to explore that and hopefully at some point heal it. And have an understanding for me, there's a, there's some like, you know, neurological hygiene, I think that also has been really helpful to me of, you know, treating what you consume mentally, the same way you treat what you consume um, food wise. You know, there's certain things that I know, like if I watch this, then it's gonna kick, mm -hmm. like I just, I know how this ends mm -hmm. and really, the miracle of doing the 12 step program work is about being able to make choices only that are a positive contribution to your future self. And the idea is every day I'm like playing defense on future shame because happiness is not a word that I just use. It doesn't work for me. I'm, it puts too much pressure on me. It's too vague. But I know that when I go to bed, when I'm doing my 10 step, um, if I feel pride in the way I behaved, all day, I feel good. That's what happiness is to me, mm -hmm. is pride. So I, 
will engage in a behavior and go like, am I going to be proud of this in two days? Am I going to be proud of this text? Am I going to be proud of the way I behaved? And that's sort of my life hack of, of what right. I found that but works. But then do you find yourself rewarding yourself for that by then indulging in something maybe you might not be proud of? You know, like <laughs> I'm going to binge this terrible show or whatever. You know, I'm talking about like relatively benign things, mm-hmm. but stuff that you know, like as they say, the road yeah. gets narrower, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, I can't keep doing that thing anymore. Or like I gave up all these other things. Like, do I really have to give up this thing too? Come yeah. on, like, let me have a little bit of fun over here. Yeah, no, I mean, I that, that I do somewhat, I really have my, um, I have a pretty like, rigid yet wildly flexible um, sort of schedule of things that I do to make sure that my internal needs are met. Cause one of the first things I heard was happiness is an inside job, which was mind blowing to me that mm-hmm. it wasn't everyone's job in the room to make sure I was okay at all times, mm-hmm. even though I'm such a people pleaser. I was trying to make sure, you okay? Do you need anything? Like every, your waitress, right. wherever you go, you, but you're not really, can I help you clean up? You don't really want to clean up. Is that a real offer? Or are you just trying to make people like you? Yeah. Like, what is this performance? You know, and I think that you know, codependents. If I could just jump back a little, to be super specific. Codependents are you know people who define themselves through their ability to be productive for others or useful to others. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically grew up in a situation where we had to be precocious, probably very young. It's usually the you know the second child, third, fourth, fifth, someone that had to raise themselves. Someone had to be you know too mature, too early. So then they have an overdeveloped responsibility as adults to other people. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is like, before you solve the problem, first make sure it's your problem. You know, that's a tricky one, you know? And then you look at your motives for, for whatever you're doing. I'm going to this uh, bachelor party. I'm like, do I really wanna go to this? Am I doing this out of obligation? If I'm doing this out of obligation, that's gross to do to the other person. Because anyone that is truly a friend of mine, and um, we have an authentic, actual, intimate connection, you know, as friends, mm-hmm. I'm lying. My behavior is showing up and lying. We really focus not on what we say, it's about the choices we make and the behavior we make. So I would never want someone that I'm friends with to come to something out of obligation and be like, oh my God, why am I going to that? Like, I would never want that. That would, you know, so that's gross. And that's all between you and your spirit, you know, because I think that's what slowly breaks our spirit when we force ourselves to do things that we don't want to do because we assume that those people, we project onto them, you're going to be as punishing as Mm -hmm. my, this person. You're going to be as mean as this person. You're going to keep score like this other person. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with that person. Right. Um, And and your worldview is that everything is conditional in your life. Everything has. Everything is teetering on disaster at all times unless you like sort of do that right behavior. But that's us and that's, it's your job to heal yourself. I know that's, that, that, that is my, as soon as I started thinking that way, and as soon as I started saying like, why doesn't someone just invent a time machine to change my childhood? Like, what did I think was gonna happen? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you get to a point where you're like, I've tried all these things. Blame just doesn't work. Obsession doesn't work. Silently seething doesn't work. Complaining all day doesn't work. You know, let me just try this whole, you know, grant me the serenity, accept the things I cannot change, the sure. courage to change and the wisdom to know the difference. So there's a lot of things I have power over. Like, the, but I remember early on in a, um, a meeting, a woman talked about how when she's not clear on what is and isn't her responsibility, you know, um, because codependents, we tend to be the people that are like, what do you need? I need a doctor, let's call mm-hmm. Whitney. Oh, who's that dentist call? I like love to be useful, want to entrench myself in your life because ultimately, you'll abandon me. So I have to find ways to put my hooks in you, mm-hmm. you know, and being helpful and useful. It's like, I've got your insulin, where are you gonna go? You know, it's kind of, all of it is fear of being abandoned. And it all came with a scorecard. You know, I dropped off flowers for your wife and then I brought you this thing for your kids. You didn't ask for any of that. And right. then my birthday comes up and Rich doesn't, co- I went, to, 
I dropped right. off. You're the only one keeping score though. But yeah, it, 100%. Mm-hmm. And then I'm destroying my relationship with you because I did a bunch of nice, nice, mm-hmm. people pleasing is a form of assholery. The nice thing that I did had strings attached. You right. know, but today I had no, you know, cause I didn't pay for it or buy it for you. I don't, <laughs> I did the least, you know, and that's sometimes how you keep a relationship strong and your connection to yourself, because you're also betraying yourself. You're lying to yourself and you're performing. And I found that I got to a point in my life where someone asked me, a sponsor I was working with said, um, when you look in the mirror, do you look in your eyes? And I was like, That's such a weird ass LA Scientology, what is it? Like, do you, right. am I getting a pamphlet? Like, <laughs> and I realized I look in the mirror and I just, and the first, never, 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 because I was so disconnected to myself because I was betraying myself, you know, all day long and um, lying to other people, myself with my actions, my behaviors, guilt-based decisions, um, mothering, martyring, micromanaging, which those are the three M's, which is, you know, it could be fathering, micromanaging, mm-hmm. martyring, whatever it is. It's just basically you're constantly trying to rescue people, help people, fix people, solve problems that aren't yours with your overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And I remember I just was like, yeah, I'm everyone's assistant or I'm, it's my job to mm-hmm. fix everyone, save everyone, which is part of the reason that Al-Anon's, you know, whereas an alcoholic might be addicted to alcohol and Al-Anon right. might be addicted to the chaos created by that alcoholic. I feel like we need new terminology because when you say alcoholism, mm-hmm. you immediately think of alcohol. You said earlier, like you don't need alcohol present for alcoholic behavior, but to your point, like it's not about alcohol. Like it, it needs a new term. I mean, maybe just addiction in general, right? I, and, you know, Alan, and like Al-Anon and codependency, is generally thought of in this reductive sense of, of enabling alcoholic behavior. Which is essentially when something stops being a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's a definition that really works for me, whether it's you're masturbating at work in the bathroom or you're working on your computer till one in the morning and then it's two and you're, if you, or whatever, your behaviors, any of them, when it stops being a choice, is right defined as an sure. addiction. I think I'm just a little bit sensitive to, I would love to know what you think because the addiction to the phone, the addiction to the Snapchat, all this stuff, that's alcoholism, you know, sure. on some level, but it is masquerading as something else. Cause, and then once you get, it's whack-a-mole, right? Once you get the drinking under mm-hmm. the control, the eating comes up. Mm-hmm. Once the eating comes up, the sex comes up. Once the sex goes down, the porn comes up, whatever. Addict just, I guess, has been used for so long as a negative term. And I believe that addicts, have superpowers that a lot of people don't and are usually hypervigilant, just very smart. You can't get away with your alcoholic behavior if you're not wildly smart. You know, you have to be crafty and cagey to perpetuate that behavior I, over a long period of time. But I think, yeah, I think that that there's, it's certainly not a referendum on intelligence. Like it, it, it applies equally to everybody, no matter how you were brought up or who you are. And my whole thing with addiction is that it lives on this massive spectrum. So we think of it as alcoholism or drug addiction or gambling. We have these little buckets for it. But I think, you know, movies like The Social Dilemma and the relationship that we, the, the sort of fraught relationship that we all have with our phones now is making people realize like, oh, we're all captive on some level mm-hmm. and we all sit somewhere along this spectrum. And maybe it doesn't interfere with your life that much for a certain sector of the population. And then way over here, you know, you're 
living on Skid Row and you can't, you know, like it, it, it's, yeah. but I think a lot of us sit somewhere, you know, in the middle yeah. and, you know, whether it's, I can't put my phone down, I can't stop scrolling or, you know, as soon as I get activated by a text or an email, I have to respond immediately or I keep getting, I keep dating the same kind of person and having the same kind of result. Like yeah. all of these things are, you know, alcoholic slash addictive behaviors. And the more that we can become self-aware of, what's driving us and where it's leading us, I think we're in a better position to, you know, heal those wounds and find better strategies for life. So it's really, a, it's a very, uh, you know, universal condition, I think. And that's kind of the drum that I'm always banging with this. And maybe it's just me because I've spent so much time in um, with family members in rehab and sponsoring people and stuff. And, and maybe this is just the people that decide to go to the meetings and reach out, you know, and I'm always like, I always start with, this person might just be too damn smart to get this, yeah, which sounds crazy. Intelligence does not serve you nope. in recovery. And most of the addicts, if we're gonna say mm -hmm. that for now, I say superheroes, you know, whenever I meet them, I'm like, oh, you were just smarter than everyone. That's why you didn't feel understood. You're just more sensitive than ever. You just have all these superpowers and you wanted to dull yourself. You wanted to check out of your own brain, you know, is usually, so when I'm working with someone new, a sponsor or something, it's like, it's almost like you've been overdeveloped <laughs> with, uh, you know, certain things and some people just, you know, the way that I think it was Margaret Cho was just on my podcast and I was reading about her when she went into rehab, she said something so perfect that made me just fall in love and relate to anyone that's ever used substances to, to dull their brains. She's like, I just didn't wanna care anymore. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to stop caring for like a day, mm -hmm. you know? I just want to stop caring about what people thought about me. Well, that's where the addictive behavior is the solution to the yep. problem. It's not the problem it's the solution and it works or we wouldn't do it, but mm -hmm. then at some point it stops working, right? And we keep doing it. That's the problem. So in relationships, whether it's drug addiction or codependence or Al-Anon, it's tricky because, you know, your problem, uh, your problem is you and the fact that you gravitated towards this, you know, situation and found it to, mm -hmm. you thought this person was your soulmate because they were giving you all this chaos and drama or this person is such a mess in their life that it makes me feel superior, even though I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. less of a mess than the person in active addiction, right. <laughs> you know? So it gives you like, you know, this arrogance of like, he doesn't even know his AT. Oh, now I have to go learn Spanish to talk to the drug dealers. Okay, I guess I'm just a hero <laughs> angel. Um, right, and that's what you needed to you know, to you kind of solve that wound that you have inside yourself. Well, yeah, yourself. I just got high yeah. off self-righteous indignation. Yeah. Thank you, person in active addiction. Mm -hmm. I just used you to get my hit. Right. You know, so it's just this really toxic, you know, surreptitious. It's it's a Al-Anon is very insidious because a lot of it masquerades as kindness. You know, when I was in the throes of my codependent behavior, if someone asks you. What's Whitney like? They would say, she's the nicest. She drives everyone to the airport. They shouldn't even know. Like it, you would go, that mm -hmm. sounds sick. You know, but it's pathological kindness, we could like to say, pathological mm -hmm. thoughtfulness mm -hmm. as a way to let you know how thoughtful I am. Right. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become 
so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So what was your breaking point with all of this? Like, how did, how did you get ushered into the rooms? I had a family member going to rehab because also the the wild thing, probably very similar to work addiction, is that codependence is incredibly rewarded. It is incredibly rewarded. You are so useful. I played sports really Mm -hmm. competitively. I was always the first person to get there, the last person to leave. Like I was. Hello. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Just mostly because you guys organized this wrong. Uh (laughs) You know, we think we're right about everything because we had an alcoholic coach who was less reliable to make it to mornings from practice. So I had the keys to the pool. And that is a form of trauma that most people wouldn't categorized under trauma, but it was like, oh. And I was proud. I was like, yeah, I'm reliable. I will be there. I will make sure that everybody gets in. We're and gonna have mornings from practice. Which goes, oh, the authority figure isn't reliable. Mm-hmm. I'm on my own, mm-hmm. you know? So as soon as- And that drives the control issues and the perfectionism. Because you have great data that you should have the keys. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the tricky part. Is it when someone's like, you're mothering, you're micromanaging. Well, 
you guys suck at this. I, I like. There's also a tricky one because it's like, well, I am better at this than you are. Maybe not for the right, right reasons, but I am. You know. Mm -hmm. So then you get to a point where you just go, it's not about that, you know. And then when you're leading 200 people, there's no time to act like that. And it turns out when you think that you're helping someone or helping them save time, you're just patronizing them and you're like telling them, I don't trust that you can do this, so I'm going to do it myself. Mm -hmm. But the guys, it's oh, you know, I'll do it for you. Oh, I got it. No, no, I got it. No worries. You go home. But you're really just saying, I don't like the way you do things. I'll just martyr right. myself and do it and then start to hate you and not even give you a chance, frankly. Right. You know, because we were proven <laughs> wrong as a kid. Uh -huh. It was very hard to trust other people to do things. I had a um a really brutal a family member of mine went into rehab and I was, you know, there. 24 seven, did the intervention, bring in the Nutri-Grain bars, bring in the, you know, athletic greens, you know, uh, just there every single day. What do you need? Can I get you a sweatshirt? Do you need, do you need new shoes? Do you need comforter? I mean, I was just there all day, every day while I was doing two television shows simultaneously. And um, someone pulled me aside, uh, my now therapist, who was the family uh, therapist there. Uh, she specializes in neuroscience of addiction, childhood trauma, et cetera, et cetera. And she, um, she's 30 years sober, she's amazing. And she came up to me and she was just like, hey, so you know you're just killing this person faster. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you know, but... Uh, and. Of course, I had guilt about what happened to both of us as kids, you know, what happened to her. Not, and I just wanted to fix it with my love. And mm -hmm. that's not how neurology works. That's not how- Younger than you? Older. Older, interesting. You know, and so we both have sexual abuse in our past, which is a very, once you really get a handle on that, a lot of behavior starts to make sense. And you start to go, oh, wait a second. All these things I do, I could actually kind of like reroute to be incredible tools to give me a giant advantage. Mm. Like, I actually think I have a giant advantage because of all these things. Like, let me just perceive it that way, you know? So for the longest time, I perceived my trauma as exactly what it was. The trauma I didn't block out, which we can talk about later or repress or completely disassociate from, but I perceived it as trauma and as a liability. And I have two broken legs and a broken brain. And then as soon as I changed my perception on it, I was like, oh my God, I was like gifted all these wild superpowers. Mm. I'm just using them wrong, mm. you know? So once I was able to do that, I it, it, my life got pretty awesome, but it took, you know, 14 years in Al-Anon and right. still sponsoring and still super involved. So when that therapist was like, you're killing yourself uh, or you're, you're, you're actually killing this person that you love more quickly. Because you're not giving them the dignity of their own experience and yeah. they can't grow if you do everything for well, them. Well, and you're slowly killing yourself trying to solve a problem that's not your problem to solve, right? Correct. But when that lands like a ton of bricks, like does that ring a bell in you and say, I need to go to Al-Anon? Or like, how did you like walk into your first meeting? Well, cause then the first thing I did was I went to the person. I was like, am I killing you? Like, is this bad? Should I not give you a hundred dollars every day for whatever you need mm -hmm. for groceries? And of well, course- that, Yeah, but you're, you're asking the unreliable narrator. <laughs> like, of course they're gonna say, keep doing Does that. Does the drug addict <laughs> need cash yeah, in yeah, rehab? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I did the you know cardinal mistake, which I went back to to the person, and I was like, I just talked to her, and she she doesn't she thinks it's fine what I'm doing, like, and yeah. she was like, okay, uh -huh. so. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm like I'm like I'm a hero, and I get I don't think yeah. you understand, okay? Like uh -huh. I'm handling this, I've got it, and um, she said to me, she goes, you know, there's a program uh, that 
you know, is worth going to. I'd love to take you some time. And, you know, I was like, why? Why would I need a program? She's the one that won't stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Come from the same household, cut from the same cloth. Had the birth order been reversed, it would have just, you know. And she goes, well, I just watched you go to the problem for the solution. And I was like, yeah, that's how you get a solution. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, you sober people are just, you don't get it. Mm. You know what I mean? I saved, I'm a very busy person. I don't, I, so her whole thing was like, no, if you have a, if your problem is someone else's behavior, you go to a program to, for the solution because the solution might be do nothing. The solution might be do not a damn thing because right. we're so addicted to taking an action. But that doesn't compute. Does not compute. So then I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to this meeting so I can figure out how to get her sober. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the equivalent of like, I'm gonna go to AA so I can figure out how to continue to drink without being an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like. It's totally ridiculous. And so, no, or people that are like, uh, I shoplift bad, but I'm just going to the gambling um, 12-step programs because it's basically a gambling addiction at the base of it. It's like, well, uh-huh. you're not, th- okay. But yes, the lies we tell ourselves and the delusions. And look, I had a ton of proof that I was a super high function as a perfectionist, as a micromanager sure. and as a martyr, I had gotten a lot Which of- Which makes it harder because the world is smiling upon you and you're being wildly rewarded for these unhealthy behavior patterns mm-hmm. that you're blithely unaware at some point are really gonna derail you at best and might actually kill you. Sometimes we're hurting people and ourselves and we don't even know it because we're just zombies and it always worked for us before. And I went in to my first 12-step Al-Anon meeting, ACA, Adult Child of Alcoholics is the focus, which Mm -hmm. basically means you grew up in a home with addiction, let's say, um, to anything. And I went in and I was so bored. I was like, these people, I now look back and I can say, oh my God, all these people actually had self-worth and self-care and that's why they were doing these things. But I was like, this guy's eating a salad. Like, why are you in pajamas? Like, I was just like, what is this? I was like, this is like a bunch of slobs complaining, you know? And um, and then there were all the rules. And I was like, God, how dumb are these people that you have to sit through all these rules? Every, like, wait, can we just get to it? And then every time someone would speak where the, it didn't apply to me, I would just like tune out or like right. get on my phone. Looking for the differences. Totally. I was, oh, I, I was like, oh, no, no, no. If you guys aren't only talking about me, like I'm at, it was just, and then they, I was like, okay, I get it. I did get it in that meeting because someone said, people pleasing is a form of assholery. That clicked. And then the speaker that day opened with, I have good news and bad news. The good news is the war is over. The bad news is that you lost. <laughs> so now it's just about picking up the pieces. Uh-huh. Now, like that's great news. The Damocles sword fell. Now let's just pick up the pieces, you know? And I, that to me was like, I know how to do that. Being in delusion about whether something is going well or bad, that is confusing to me because I can convince myself of anything. You know, I think that helps me as a comedian to be able to see both sides of everything and empathize with, mm-hmm. you know, every uh, facet of something. But I heard that and I was like, okay. And then I went to another meeting and also- there, That was pe- enough to get you to go back. Well, also, you know, uh, it was hilarious. And there were these deep belly laughs uh-huh. that I had never experienced. Or were you thinking like, I can get some good material here? It wasn't even that. Like it in was in a very Hollywood way. Like, I, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna. I love that people think <laughs> I'm so Hollywood. I live right down the street no, from you. No, but I know, I know. But like, did you go, like when I got sober, the, the, all the meetings I went to were- Sundowners? Like yeah, of yeah. course. Like, I've been to all of those. <laughs> no, that's where I went you know. to try and date musicians. Yeah, sure. That were vulnerable. Yeah, it's good for that, actually. <laughs> oh, I'm aware. Yeah. Melrose and Mansfield. Yep. Like, okay. um, Log Cabin. Sure. Just gone I, now, I, I think. That's where I got sober and I was there every morning for years. I yeah. must say, 
you know, thank God this podcast exists so people can hear this everywhere. But Southern California is an incredible, incredible. place for recovery, truly. I'm so grateful, like the community of people that I was able, I mean, I needed all new friends, right? And I was in a city where there were just tons of young, cool people who were sober and really into recovery and would like love going to meetings. And it was unbelievable. Like my first couple of years of just going from meeting to meeting to meeting and meeting all of these amazing people who've become like my closest friends. By the way, day. amazing people. People are always like a meeting, like in a church, abandoned church. I'm like, which a lot of people have God stuff, you know, of like, God, what's this? So I usually, usually will go with people to their first meeting. So I'm like the God thing, just don't worry about it. Like, it's just not, God just, all you need to believe in this is that you aren't God. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you can say that you're not God and you can't change people's- not, Don't forget about the word God altogether and you know, use higher power or whatever you want and just think, well, this group of people has more power than me because they figured out something that like I have trouble figuring out. And why are you looking so badly for an excuse to not do this? That's the key. Just look at that. Mm -hmm. why, the God thing's weird. That's the thing you're, that is your, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's sort but of- that's the main thing for most people that prevents them from walking through the door. And everybody has all of these preconceived ideas about what it is and what it isn't. And a lot of that is driven by media, what they've seen in movies and television or some family member that wasn't able to get sober mm -hmm. through the program or whatever, which is why I have like, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Like, what is your relationship as a public person with respect to the tradition of anonymity and how you talk about this kind of stuff. Cause we've been talking about this for an hour, yeah, right? Okay. And like, I am always battling with that a mm -hmm. little bit because had I known what I discovered when I came into the meeting, I might've come in earlier. And I understand the importance of anonymity and I would never divulge, you know, the specifics of who was there or what was said, but I can still evangelize the benefits of it generally. And I, I think that that is a net positive, although I'm never sure kind of where that line is. Cause I wanna encourage people who are struggling to check it out, right? Yeah. And to do that, you have to, you know, sort of characterize it as, as something aspirational. I love this question. I love this question, especially cause I just felt myself getting a little defensive which is, so obviously this is something mm -hmm. I've been kind of grappling with in some way, even if it, I haven't talked about it much because there is, you know, in these programs and Al-Anon, the idea is you always keep the person anonymous, always, 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 not only because it's no one's business who it is and doesn't matter, but also it could put the person that is in that program in a lot of danger if you, you know, you're not allowed to call and leave messages or voicemails on someone else's mm -hmm. voicemail machine to be like, hey, is your alcoholic husband still beating you? Because they could hear that and, you know, it could put the person in danger. So that is a lot of the, the anonymity stuff. Also, you know, clearly in public, you don't want people to know anything you're doing in private. That's not fair. So I would never out someone else's anonymity. But I think for me personally, and I think that the leaders of the day need to make sure that things that leaders from 50 years ago decided was a great rule that we just like keep looking at them and go, is that still the case? Is that still the case? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we've got things like um, kids shooting up schools and we've got a real mental illness crisis. Should we still keep this secret? Is yeah. it still, I, for me, I'm a little bit reckless. And I also, I just, I just don't lie. That's something that works for me. And I think that if anyone was struggling the way I was struggling to not talk about this program, which is also free medicine in a country where there's just not 
mm-hmm. any free medicine. And um, it, let's, you know, to be frank, like it's kind of a fucking miracle that it exists and it thrives and miracle. it helps so many people and it's free and it's full of people. Like where else in the world can you walk into a room totally broken and have a community of people come to your aid and help you and not want anything in return? It's fucking amazing. There's also nothing more healing in general. I encourage every, I mean, I'm not trying to tell everyone like, hey, you're all, uh, you all qualify for this. <laughs> it's a self-diagnosed disease, but we all, come from this, you know, we all come from, if you, again, read history books, you know, we were a hundred years behind us was prohibition. I mean, they had to outlaw alcohol in this country. I know there's the real side of the story is so black people probably couldn't vote as much, you know, there's a lot of sketchy. That's a, that's a different podcast. That's a different yeah, podcast yeah. that I'm not gonna weigh in on. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of sketchy reasons that prohibition happened, obviously, but you know, alcoholism in this country and you know, in the countries we immigrated from were just a very, I mean, my I looked into my um, ancestry to try to solve some problems or um, unearth some sort of engines in me that I didn't, uh, aren't relevant to my current life. Uh-huh. And, um, I have half my ancestors died of cirrhosis, you know? I mean, this is not new, you mm. know? So I think that to not talk about this is like, you're not talking about history. You're not talking about science. You're not talking about epigenetics. There's just no way to not, to try to be in the space in any capacity, um, and not talk about it. And yes, it's, it's a bunch of people who want to be more mature. It's a bunch of people that wanna make right decisions. And I think that if you only look at the data from being on the internet, where everyone's an asshole and everyone wants to cancel everyone, you do need to make sure if you're gonna engage and consume that stuff online, what is your antidote to that? To make sure that you're seeing the world and human beings in a balanced way. I'm very lucky I have stand-up comedy because I get to go see you know, 2000 people in one room. They're all laughing at the same mm-hmm. shit. No one knows who anyone voted. No one knows you know, what team anyone roots for. I'm like, we have so, people are trying. There's These people laughed at these jokes and they left and they wanna vote. None of them are like, you're punching down. Like most people aren't like that. And mm-hmm. I think that if you want to be mentally healthy today, you have to take active contrary actions to make sure that you're getting data from in interactions from most people, not just the like 10,000 people yeah. online who are probably very mentally ill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument in terms of anonymity, I mean, the the kind of actual language is we're we're anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film, right? That's kind of like in the in the literature. Okay, you didn't right? put YouTube so, in there, Bill. I know, but like, <laughs> is this press? Is this well? It's not technically radio, right? Kind of. So, but but I guess you could make the argument. I mean, the idea being like, you don't like you know promote this in the world, and and part of that is if you're a public facing person and you do that and then you relapse, it reflects poorly on the community. And I think there's some, I, there, I understand that. Look, you know, Bill, the big book doesn't include phones, cell phones, it doesn't include computers. It doesn't, it, that was written before like porn and vapes and weed being mm-hmm. legal. <laughs> there's a couple things that need to be updated about it. And, you know, I'm happy to be wrong, but. I usually feel like I'm going in the right direction when I'm able to stop and check my motives and go, mm-hmm. okay, am I talking about this to try to get attention? Am I talking about this to try to make people feel sorry for me? Am I trying to make people like me? Am I trying to make people think I'm smart? What am I trying to do? And then if I'm like, no, I just, I am, I, if I had had this program when I was 20, a program to reparent myself, that's all it is, 
Our parents did the best they can with the tools they had. And then there's just, it's just college for how to behave in relationships, how to behave, mm-hmm. um, how to treat yourself, how to treat other people. I just didn't, I got a bad blueprint for that. And it was no one's fault. I mean, mm-hmm. my dad and uh, mom worked a lot. They were really busy, mm-hmm. you know, because they had to work for money. I interpreted it as neglect, <laughs> right. but they were trying to keep me fed. You know, I was a perception issue. And so, there's so many magic tricks in this program. There's also just some of the most incredible people I've ever met, some of the most healing laughs I've ever had because there is a levity within these programs. No one wants to have to do that three times a week. You know, mm-hmm. until then, once you start doing it, you really wanna do it because you know how great it is. It's like exercise or anything. It's gonna suck for the first couple of weeks and then you'll get kind of addicted to it. And I think there's such a thing as positive addictions. If you know your brain is, you know, doesn't hold dopamine the same way other people's hold dopamine, which is basically what ours is. There's biological bases for it, you know? Um, But then when you start getting addicted to meetings and hanging out with friends and cool people and taking calls from sponsees, you know, you're like, wait, is this addictive the way I'm, you're like, no, this is a good thing. Like this is a positive addiction. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I totally agree. I mean, I think that there's, you know, on on the subject of levity, like there's nothing more healing than to go into that environment, harboring some deep shame or some secret about some terrible thing that you did and hear somebody share a similar analogous version of that story and just own it with laughter. It's just unbelievably liberating to realize like, oh, A, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And B, like there is hope to transcend this thing that I'm so deeply afraid of ever telling anybody that that I did. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there's people around there who will, you know, welcome you without judgment and walk you through the process of going from the newcomer to being the person up there sharing your story is just the, one of the coolest things I've ever participated in or been witness to. And um, in addition, when someone is helping you, you're helping them. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to feel guilt that oh, this right. person's helping me, and you know that's the mind fuck that like took me a long time to figure out. But yeah, <laughs> that's the mind fuck of codependents in general. Because normally yeah. codependents, I'm like, just call me every day. Try. Oh, you mean it's good for me to be of service to With people? It, like I can selfishly be of service because it will help me. Like that's probably not a great message for an Al-Anon. Well, no, it's more that I'll go. Okay, great, I'll sponsor you. Let's talk every morning for 10 minutes, talk every night for 10 minutes, send me this many voice memos a day. Anytime you do this or this, just check in with me about it. Let's make a scout, whatever. And it's a lot of like, well, I just, I don't wanna bother you. Like, I just don't Mm -hmm. wanna, I know you're busy. And like, I just don't, I feel guilty calling twice a day. And I'm like, so this is the, you know, mind fuck of codependence. So uh, let's play that scene out. You're the uh, codependent, you're a newcomer day one into Al-Anon. Rich, I'm your sponsor. I want you to call me twice a day, check in. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't want to bug you. So I don't. I don't know. So you think I'm busy? You're busy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But if it was, if we stopped before, if I have time, it was this. But it's more like I don't want to bother you. So I said, call me. You said I don't want to bother you. So now you're calling me a liar. Mm. You're saying that I just said something insincere. Mm -hmm. That's rude. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like when we really get to the bottom of codependent, I'm so worried about you. You're saying a couple of things. Number one, that I'm bad at my own time management, that I say things that I don't mean and that I'm trying to manipulate you. Like you doing that was insulting to me. Right, well, the other piece, at least 
from the alcoholic perspective in that context would be, what's your angle or what are you trying to get over on me? Or you're trying to, like, there's a hitch here. 13 like, stepping just, on you. I'm waiting for, yeah, like, for the, for, to find out like, oh, you're actually trying to run a scam on what me. What I would say is good news, bad news. The shoe dropped. I'm not gonna fuck you over. Mm-hmm. You already fucked yourself over enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what would I fuck you, you over well, for? Your three like, DUIs? You don't have anything that I want, <laughs> yeah, exactly. dude. That's the thing. Why would <laughs> I, what? What do I get? Your studio apartment with the That's the, the grandiosity of the newcomer, right? And then also you can get information just, so I think a lot of what this is about is just like slowing down the way that we talk and getting super granular with what your reaction is to something. So if I say to her, uh, nice sponsor, I sponsor, you know, female identifying people. I say, uh, call me anytime. She says, I can't, I feel guilty. And I go, that's great information that mm. people uh, were insincere with you growing up, or they said one thing and meant another thing, or there were strings attached, or they overpromised and underdelivered, or they, offered something and then made you feel guilt when you actually took it. Right, or they made you believe that their time was more valuable than yours. So let's start writing that up in your four step. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, what is the um, four step story about how, cause I think the, the key to all this is also knowing whether you do one meeting or do them all the time, like, like I do, you on some level believe that you're terminally unique. Right, if mm-hmm. you're like, I don't wanna tell anyone that bad thing I did. Like, oh, you're the only person right. that stole a car. You think you're, what you did was, so, there's an arrogance to what sure. I did was so bad. And then you get someone read your fourth step, which is you admitting all the you know, crazy shit you've done. And you're, uh, there's, like, eh. there's a story that's like, yeah. And then I fucked this chicken. He's like, wasn't there a whole coop? You only <laughs> fuck one of them? Yeah. You know, it just was sort of like, We've all right. done that. And I think it was um, Barry Michaels and who is the other therapist that wrote the tools, Phil Stutz. Mm. Um, he uh, talks about, he said it so elegantly. Phil Stutz, he was, he was the big uh, the therapist, psychologist guy mm-hmm. in Hollywood, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Being a Hollywood yeah. psychologist. He was the guy that <laughs> everyone wanted to get with yeah. though, right? Yeah, he's like very hard to Is he to still get around? Him and Phil Stutz, who, I'm sorry, him and Barry Michaels, who is sort of his protege, yeah. wrote that book called The Tools, yeah, yeah. which I highly recommend some, there's some like antidotes that I think your fan base would just find a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, too simple for them. It's sort of, they already know it. Um, but there's some exercises that are incredible that they put together yeah. the um, deathbed exercise where you uh, picture yourself on your deathbed. Mm-hmm like very vividly, it actually really helps put things in perspective. Right, the idea like being that if you're, when you're going through a problem or you're having some kind of experience, fast forward to the deathbed and then realize, like then reflect on whatever you're going through right now is this really important. I had a, I mean, you know, I struggled with eating disorders for a very long time. I had a really profound experience when I was just was like, oh my God, I would be so bummed if on my deathbed, I looked back and was like, you spent like years of your life, like counting calories and like driving around the city buying sugar-free protein bar. Like I just was like, I, my future, I'm not gonna let that happen to my mm-hmm. future self. Like mm-hmm. I, I will not go down like that, you know? And it just, something clicked. But mm-hmm. when you're doing the work and you're asking for, you know, illuminating of your psyche and your inner monologue, I think that when something really simple hits you, it really can make a change in your brain real fast. Yeah. So control issues, people pleasing, boundaries, uh, disordered eating, codependency, like it's a whole bag of tricks here. So, and you, you've done like so much work, right? To like, <laughs> but like, 
<laughs> I'm interested in like, what's the, cause the, on that idea of like the road is always getting narrower, like you never transcend all of this. So mm-hmm. what's the thing that's coming up now? Like, I love what that. What is the thing that you're, you're doing battle with? And can I just say really quick, just in terms of, because I, um, what happens in vagueness? stays Mm -hmm. in vagueness. And I think that um, it might be worth saying like, you know, in these programs you say admitted to God or power greater than yourself that you are powerless over blank, Mm -hmm. powerless over alcohol, powerless over cocaine, powerless over sex, powerless over porn, powerless over whatever the thing is that you're powerless over where it's no longer a choice. And in Al-Anon for me, it changed. Like in the beginning, it started with, um, I was powerless over other people's behavior. I would obsess over other people's behavior. I would try to, why did he do that? Why did he say that? He doesn't like me, but hold on, does he like, wait, should I have said that? I shouldn't have said that. I mean, just constant, constant. Other, and then I'm powerless over other people's perceptions of me. Then I was powerless over perfectionism. Then I was powerless over worrying and panic. Like yeah. worrying gave me a high. I think that the, an addiction to anxiety and panic is super real. Uh, an addiction to chaos. You know, I, I'm powerless over chaos. I love chaos, but it's all a choice. I'm the one getting in the car and driving to his house. Yeah. I'm the one that drove over. I, I'm the one that drove to that Thanksgiving with my dad and his new wife. I have, I'm the one doing that. So did you have a bunch of boyfriends that were just chaos agents that would fill that need? It's wild because I've been very lucky. I believe that in your 20s, every if you're in a bad, whatever that means, that's normal. You mm-hmm. know, what, what you do in your 20s, experimentation, figuring things out, you know, we need contrast. You gotta be in a couple of bad relationships. So when the right person comes along, you're actually gonna be grateful and not be like, Raya, 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 maybe there's more, you know? Mm-hmm. So there are some that were just more childish than anything, but actually I was, because I was so precocious, I was actually able to do relationships pretty well with some healthy people until I started um, being successful in terms of my, you know, it took, having the whole day free to be able to maintain those relationships, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a red flag, because I used to think that proximity and intimacy went hand in hand. Yeah. So when I was able to do, it was dysfunctional at the time. If he went out of town, I'd like, what are you doing? I'll come with you, you know, whatever. So afraid of being cheated on, abandoned, left, whatever. Um, and then I started, I dated a couple, uh, um, a couple addicts were saying in active addiction. And there was one that was so bad. Um, I was, you know, hiding crack pipes and driving downtown and fighting with drug dealers and that whole thing. And I really thought I was helping this person. You know, I really thought I could, if someone just loved him enough, he would be sober. Mm -hmm. That uh, shows my lack of understanding of basic neuroscience, basic biology, you know? So one of the first things they say to do when you come into Al-Anon is study addiction, Mm -hmm. learn about it. There's that book, Addicts and Addictive Thinking, I think. Study alcoholism, study what happens to the brain because you're gonna take their behavior personally and it has nothing to do with you, you know? So that relapse had nothing to do with you. In fact, you probably be like, where's the crack pipe? Where's, is there anything? Who just called you? I mean, like no one, that's not gonna help someone (laughs) tolerate, you know, life without being anesthetized if that's been their choice Mm -hmm. so far. And then, you know, I I believe you've mentioned this uh, before, uh, a rule that kind of helped me, rule, whatever it is, aphorism, is that you are the age you are minus the amount of time you've been using drugs. So I was also in relationships with people that had, even if they were sober, they had been doing drugs since they were 14, now they're 30 and just emotionally, they haven't developed their coping mechanisms mm-hmm. yet. They haven't had an opportunity to have the dignity of their own experience. Like they're still catching up emotionally. And I was expecting them to run with a broken leg. I was expecting them to be in a relationship with the emotional intelligence of a 14 year old. Yeah, that's a big one, I think. 
Um, people have this assumption that when somebody gets sober and then maybe they have a year or something like that, like, oh, they're fine. Like everything's fine. They're back to, you know, being who they are, but they don't understand that, you know, they have to learn how to be in the world. Like I couldn't tell you how many years it took for me to learn how to say no to like anything. Like I had no ability to tell me about that. Be an adult. <laughs> you know. Like, meaning like would you feel like they'd be mad at you? Sure. Yeah. But that showed up for me mostly as avoidance. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I'll respond to that email later or I'll just like pretend I didn't get that text where they asked me that question. (laughs) And then you get in those situations where time passes and then the phone weighs a million pounds. Which is so unfair to you. I do that. I I used to do that all the time. I still, you know, I'm challenged by that. Because to me, if I send you a text saying, hey, Rich, you wanna come to my birthday? And you're like, just let me just not. I like you so much. Like it'd be my nightmare if I stressed you out with that, you know? Mm. But I would never think that it would be that much of a challenge for you, you know? So it's sort of like we are, you know, it's on us to develop the coping mechanisms to be able to go, okay, I've got this. This is the tool I used, which is like I have uh, in my voice, notes in my notes app, I put in, I do a lot of voice memoing um, mm-hmm. for my 10th step and stuff to like listen back and see if I'm full of shit sometimes. Um, but is I have like three go-to sayings for when someone asks me to do something, you know? Hey, so good to hear from you. I am at capacity right now. And I just, I can't commit to anything at the moment. Can I let you know in a couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, can you actually send this to, with someone on that's my scheduler so they can send it to a fake email, whatever it is. Hey, I just can't commit right now. Here's what, if anyone is unhappy with that response, they're uh, not integrated. Sure. And then the sooner we start, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean, instead of, oh, hey, you're, invite, you just invited me, it's next week. And with, if you don't put that <laughs> shit on them, it's a great opportunity to, for both of you to practice maturity and to see as you evolve in your program and start reparenting yourself to be mature um, in your expectations of other people and not try to put your hooks in everyone, you get to see who they are. Mm-hmm. And then you also you also get to get proof that number one, no one cares if you say no. Right. And no one cares when you cancel, you're doing them the biggest favor, mm-hmm. you know? The other response, unhealthy response is the multiple paragraph one where you tell some long story about like why you can't do. So That's the in really my first one. six months, yeah. no emails longer than two sentences. Uh-huh. <laughs> Any email that is more than three sentences, you are either trying to manipulate, uh-huh. you're apologizing, you're trying to micromanage how they perceive you, you're trying to yeah. guilt them or shame them. Do they deserve, you know, same thing. Oh, and then the, well, I sent you that text today. I try to be very succinct, mm-hmm. but I had to go, nope, he does not need to know that. That's me trying to make uh, him think I'm not an asshole, mm-hmm. you know? And then I'm going, oh, this guy's, that makes me go, oh, this guy is, has no ability to judge me when he meets me or he's, if he thinks I'm an asshole based on that one extra sentence, there's probably something off with him. Right. You know, but right. to really- But it takes that recovery and that maturity to have that thought occur to you. Maturity is such a crazy word because I think we associate it with being kids, but as an 
ACA adult child of alcoholic, the whole reason it's called that is because we're still as adults behaving the way we did when we were children and using the tools that worked for us. Mm -hmm. Whether it was like performing for everyone, shape shifting for everyone, you know, it's sort of if you had alcoholism in your home or you had any kind of neurodivergence or um, borderline personality, which I think just very recently we even have any understanding of in the zeitgeist and it's all still pretty murky or schizophrenia or compulsive behaviors, um, you know, you adapted. That's the wonderful thing about us is we mm -hmm. can adapt so quickly, you know? And then I know how to keep everything we say at 70 degrees. And do you need anything? Do you need anything to, just to make sure everyone's Right, okay. the problem is that adaptation gets calcified. And when your environment changes, your adaptations don't change with it. Mm -hmm. Unless you, you consciously try. You continue to go try. back to those same strategies that you learned as a young person just to survive and get through the day. And now they're, they show up as very unhealthy behavior patterns that sure. are ruining your life. And what programs do is they take your brain off of auto drive. Mm -hmm. It takes it off your default software. So we go, oh, this is my default software. I'm gonna update it. And so that I'm not operating on that same software. If that gets murky, it'll always default to that software. It'll mm -hmm. always default to those thoughts, that blueprint. You know, if I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, if I've skipped some meetings, if I've skipped, you know, you know, doing any of my rituals that keep me clear, if I've skipped hanging out with my friends that think like this, like I'm gonna start getting further and further away from that 2.0 and I'm gonna start defaulting, you know, if I'm scared, if I'm in a high stress situation. So like I gotta know that about myself. But what program does do for us is it gives us pause. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that, I had no idea what that meant. I was such a, I know we're not allowed to say spaz, but I was such a manic person that was just always in a rush, always in a rush. Cause I had overbooked myself, overcommitted to stuff. Busyness was kind of an addiction of mine, not necessarily mm -hmm. productivity, but just busyness. It was a way of being avoidant. It's a way mm -hmm. of not having to be with my feelings and keep that victim mentality of like, I'm always, people want so much for me. And I just, I'm just you know, that martyr complex, which by the way, um, so one of the first questions I ask sponsees and Alan on is I say, okay, if, it, if you're going to the Rich Roll podcast, if it takes 30 minutes to get to Rich Roll and you have to be there at three o'clock, what time do you leave? Mm -hmm. Takes 30 minutes. What is the healthy response or what do your what sponsees is, well, say? Well, what are the sponsees responses? Usually if they're just coming in the program, like you leave at 3.30 mm -hmm. because no. it takes 30 minutes to get right. there. But then you show, if anything intervenes, you're late. Magical thinking. Yeah. What if you run to someone you know? What if there's traffic? What if you stop and pee? What if you have to, you know, getting out of the car, you, want, you can't find the building. Like mm. you're not setting yourself up for a positive result. Sure. You're not but, giving but yourself cushion. The more typical, they may say that, but then they'll still leave at 2.45 because there's a self-sabotage aspect of it. Like even if they're not consciously aware that they're running late, they'll set themselves up so that they end up leaving late. And then that's a way to flog yourself or to create stress on the way there. So you can tell yourself you're a piece of shit or get the rush of hormones that come with like, I gotta get, you know, like. With making sure yeah. no one respects you. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Cause it's also yeah, like, yeah. like why, like, you know, so to me that is a form of insanity and a form of exactly making sure that you feel like shit later uh, to you know, be an engine to your shame addiction, and you're bringing other people into it, which is especially you know disrespectful. But um, you know, I think that that's something that you know for me is a big one. It's a very small thing. You know, a lot of these big problems I think have really basic 
um, solution. So I'm, I have anxiety all day. Okay, try just for a week scheduling out your day in a way that gives you an hour between each thing if it mm-hmm. takes 30 minutes, and then just see what happens. You know, right. see- But the, for the unhealthy person, it's like, you don't, yeah, but uh, whatever. Like I need the complicated solution because I'm special and my problems are special. I know, you don't understand how terrible it is for me. Yeah, I know, I look, yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. So you know what, never mind then. You know what, I'm so sorry, never mind. Yeah. You're, you're good, I think you're good. And look, with I went away. The first year of Allen on ACA, I used it, I weaponized it. I mean, because I, I went in and I went, I get exactly what this is. I'm too busy for this. These guys, I don't have to mm-hmm. do the steps. I got it, like I got it. I just, right, I'll, the intellectualization of it. Oh, I, I, did, it. I did that too. And then I just had to relapse a ton of times and end up in a treatment center. Yep. That'll do it. That's where some, intelligence gets in the way. Sometimes a little bit of program can be horrible for you because you can use it, you know, to hover up. Well, I'm in this program, so obviously I'm right. I mean, well, what they would tell, what this, what they would say to do is this, and this is obviously, you know, you're like, that's well, I'm not going to go. To that's the called being a tourist in the program because you're not actually doing it. I'm not gonna go to the problem for the solution and you're the problem, so I'm gonna go get a solution. Like you can't, doing all that Mm -hmm. is you're just using it to bully and shame other people and it just makes your self-righteous indignation addiction even worse. Did you answer the question (laughs) that I asked you about (laughs) what's showing up for you right now? No, because (laughs) I realize I owe you a couple answers. How is it showing up for me currently still with the whack-a-mole of all of this? You know, I do also think it's really important to update your software on yourself and on your recovery of going like, oh yeah, really needed this 10 years ago when I was in recovery, but now I don't know if I need that as much anymore. I think I need to be doing more of this. And also to go, you know, recheck in because that arrogance stuff will really, the ego will come right back up. I remember during the pandemic, I did a couple Zoom meetings and, you know, I'm like, I've been doing this for so long and I'm listening to people who are just in the problem, not in the solution, Mm -hmm. which to me comes off like complaining, but they're newcomers, you know? So, oh, my work right now is to be more patient with people the way they were with me when I just came in and I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. And I thought it was cool to just brag about how bad my childhood was. Right, or, or to approach the meeting from a perspective of how you can help these people as opposed to what am I extracting from this that's helpful to me? A hundred percent. Or I'm just here to look them in the eyes and receive what they're saying. God forbid me not think about myself for three minutes. Mm-hmm. Like take the win, the respite from having to think yeah. about yourself, you know? <laughs> but when I get, that's what I love about hearing other people share and just being like, okay, it's not just me. Oh, I'm not spe- more special than anyone. Oh, it's not harder for me than it is for everyone. I'm just a worker bee, I'm just a worker bee. But when judgment comes in, that's when I know I'm getting a little rusty. Mm. When gossip comes in, especially at a time where there's just so much gossip. Um, gossip is a really big sort of no-no bottom line for a lot of Al-Anons because it's sort of how we um, feel self-righteous. It's how we judge. It's how we deal with fear. It's how we um, give ourselves a little superficial hit of self-esteem just because someone else made a mistake. That's not real Mm -hmm. self-esteem, you know? So it's like the McDonald's version of getting a little hit of self-esteem. Gossip is a big one. And then the way I handle gossip when it comes up, you know, when someone's like, oh my God, did you hear the Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard thing? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just... I would love to participate in this conversation. I just can't because yeah. it's a But how does that work as, as a podcast host in the comedy kind of ecosystem? Because that's sort of part of it. Like yeah. you guys go on each other's shows and you kind of talk about each mm-hmm. other. And part of the comedy derives from like, whether it's you know Johnny Depp and Amber Heard or whatever's mm-hmm. going on in the news. Right. Well, I my podcast is really, um, 
kind of just focused on me writing jokes about stuff and having, you know, incredible people on, but I tend to, you know, try to go personal. I don't want to ever take cheap shots at anybody. I don't, uh, we end up cutting any of that out of someone will like gossip about a celebrity or something. You have to bring it back to yourself. So Britney Spears, uh, her conservatorship's over and she was barefoot in a thing. We're not going to go, oh, she's a trash hillbilly, whatever, and go like, I did that a lot as a kid. Should we like, should I be worried about hookworm? You know, take it back mm-hmm. to yourself, um, you know, keep the focus on yourself. That's the sort mm-hmm. of Alan on adage. So for me, there's definitely been some things that I'm like, I need to sleep on it. You know, um, if you were had trauma as a child, uh, a rule that works for me is that anytime you wanna make a decision, um, wait three days and then see if that's still the decision you wanna make because- Always feel- a good rule. Feelings aren't facts, uh, and I might be having a histrionic reaction. I might be in fight or flight mode. I might not have halted today. I might just be like wanting to get those likes because I know this will go viral, mm-hmm. and I'm exploiting someone else. At the, the, you know, so I'm a big don't just do something, sit there person. Almost mm-hmm. too. Af- I've almost gone the other way. You know, when I first got into program, my big thing. Um, saying yes to everything and being exhausted. I was sick all the time. I had Costco chondritis, like my chest started ripping apart. I had pleurisy in my back. Like I was just not sleeping, going from party to uh, uh, of a person I didn't really like that much to hike with another person I didn't really even like that much. You know, running around doing quote favors to people by pretending to like them, psycho. And um, so for me, it was the answer to most things is just no. Yeah. It starts as no. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I like how on your podcast, 
you have, I mean, you have a lot of comedians and entertainers, but then every once in a while, it's like, oh, it's David Sinclair. Like, it's, you know, there's like a little overlap with what I do here. I know. And I, I always get it. such a kick out of that. And then, and then sometimes they're like deer in headlights. They're like, what is going on here? Like, what, am, what is happening? Well, I really, I, <laughs> you know? I know, I remember one yeah. time, one time Robert Green was on the podcast and I was like, uh, I literally opened with, I love all your books. I've read all your books. You know who else loves your books is Donald Trump. Like he loves, and he's like, are you saying I'm why he, and I was like, Uh oh "Oh, no, no, I just didn't, sorry. Okay, let me, (laughs) let me like recalibrate to a professional adult that I'm talking to, Uh you know? So I always try to ask questions that no one else would ask, um, you know, and it's it's cool because I get to watch your podcast and hit two birds with one stone because I think the way people consume these now is someone will look up, you know, Rich Roll, who, and then that's, well, if I had you on my podcast and then it would be the whole side of the thing would be mm. other interviewers with yeah, you. Yeah. So someone's in a wormhole on you and then they watch my podcast, then they watch Tim Ferriss and I've asked all the same questions. And then sure. Huberman asked all the same questions. So I like to really watch everything and go, here are the questions nobody has asked this person. Uh-huh. So that when they're in a wormhole, we're not just all boring ourselves to tears. Right. And so usually the questions end up being a little wild. Right, it's <laughs> good, I like it. <laughs> um, we have to talk about DC. Do you know I'm from DC? No! Yes. What? Because yeah. what I was gonna say earlier is that I also had this weird tinge of luck, which I don't think we do this enough. I'm a big gratitude list person. I don't like it, but I do it just because it works, not because I enjoy it. And one, I think a lot of times we don't look at our childhood and go, what was like advantageous? Like, let me, I can, I can all day complain about the things that weren't. But in DC, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, the coolest people to hang out with. And my boyfriend, my first boyfriend was straight edge. Mm. And that was the cool thing. Discord, yeah. uh, the- 930 club. 930 club, XXX everywhere. Like that was my mm. thing, Fugazi. Like it was all about like being sober is cool. And I just happened to get that information. Yeah. I'm sure that I gravitated towards it because it was complete opposite of what I would see at home. Uh-huh. But I, I think I got a good, little bit lucky and going like the coolest people are the ones that don't do drugs. Yeah, it's so funny because I have so many cool straight edge friends now, like guys that came up in punk rock and were part of that world and still play in bands and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I grew up not, I did. I was not like going to the 930 club. Am I allowed I to like, ask? Because it's your, Wikipedia says you're born in Malibu. Uh, or from that's Malibu. That's wrong. No, I, know. I, don't know where, I gotta stop getting my news that. from no, Alex I Jones. DC, I grew up in DC. My parents live in Georgetown now. They still live in Georgetown. That's where I grew up. Uh, I went to the Landon School for Boys. What you high school to, did you go, go to? You went to Landon? I did. This is yeah. a trip. I went to St. Andrews. Oh, you did? My mom was a teacher yeah. at Walt Whitman. Get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So we, I mean, that was the public high school that I would have gone to if I didn't. I, I, I grew up in Bethesda. Where? My parents moved to Georgetown when I went away to went like when I went away to college. But so I, I lived on Bethesda. out there on Persimmetry Road and MacArthur Boulevard, right across the two sure. the one lane bridge. Sure, I went to the Cabin John Seven Eleven uh, for elementary school. I went to Pyle. Uh, no, 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 no. I went to a private elementary school. Was it a Montessori Saint. school? No, no. It was off MacArthur, like in D.C. Um, uh, uh, Our Saints, Lady of Victory? No, I want to say St. Stephen's, but that oh, was St. Patrick's. That's where I went. You went to St. Patrick's? Yes. We went to the same elementary school. <laughs> Is it all? I mean, I'm older. I'm way older so than similar? you, but like that's crazy. And then I went to, and then I went, I went from there to Landon. 
You did the entire, you went all the way. So I went, no, I went seventh, seventh to 12th at Landon. And my mom worked at, uh, your mom worked at Whitman? Well, my mom did public relations for- Neiman um, Marcus, Neiman right? Marcus, Mazda Gallery, Bloomingdale's sure. and White Flint and Tyson's. Uh -huh. My brother White was- White Flint a, was my jam. My brother was a bouncer at third edition. No way. You for sure met. Yeah. He's I 45. definitely was there. Mm -hmm. I and mean, I would go there and I would go to Garrett's. Sure. I was a tombs bitch. Mm -hmm. uh, the guards. Tombs. Uh, the I'm, Georgetown yeah. pub too. Georgetown club. What was Georgetown the, pub like it, uh, on oh, the campus? Oh, St. Martin's like, Tavern? Oh. I don't remember. You went to Georgetown? No, I didn't. No, no, no. Wait, you said, okay. You My left. parents, yeah, like I, I came to California for college, but grew up in DC and then would go back and spent my summers in DC during college. This is such a trip. All right, we'll uh, talk more yeah, about yeah, that yeah. later. It's a, but, but, like, it's a, but I'm really into where you were born has a very big impact on the way you think. Yeah, and I, one of the reasons I, I brought it up, not just because it's somewhat shared history, like your dad was a lawyer, right? My mm -hmm. dad was a lawyer. He was, in, he was a government lawyer. And then when I was in high school, he went to a firm and your dad was like at Aaron Fox, right? Are, is that true? are you like the new Nardwar? That was on that How was on Wikipedia. Kind of stuff? That oh, was what? on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's true. I think is my dad true? on Wikipedia is also named the name that we named my dad in my television show. Uh. <laughs> so a lot of people <laughs> like, you guys, that so wasn't a documentary. Right. There was a live studio audience, uh -huh. you know? So my dad um, uh, went to Cambridge for law. He was so brilliant and so funny and um, looked exactly like Dan Aykroyd. Everyone thought he was Dan Aykroyd when I was a kid. He would mm. sign autographs as Dan Aykroyd. And I'd be like, oh, you know, and then I'd see, Dan, like, I fully thought he was Dan Aykroyd. One of the reasons I brought up DC is, you know, DC is a very unique place. There's a little bit of shared DNA with LA because they're company towns. You live in DC, it's all about politics. When you grow up as a kid and you're going to high school there, you're very well versed in everything that's going on. Mostly Much because more, it's like, what is, yeah, why like, can't we get to Maggiano's like Janet Reno's <laughs> barricade? Yeah. Like you learn that way. Right, oh, constantly that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also a town where it's not really like, like prestige doesn't derive from material wealth. It's about proximity to power, yep. and it's all, and it's also very much about academic excellence. Like Correct. it's all, like everybody's driving their Volvo with the stickers on the back where their kids go to school. And as a child, like this was the game that I was playing, and and what was reinforced in my house to be very achievement oriented. And I got very good at that game. Like that was my coping strategy for procuring love and acceptance and, and, and the like, and it's a longer story, um, but it's my version of what you shared where the world smiles on you for all of these things until you kind of you know, crash that car into a wall and realize like you need new strategies for long-term well-being. It's so interesting when you just said that, and this is how hard I've worked, even if you don't like me or think I'm funny or saw that I was on the podcast, I'm like, oh, you know, like this changed my life, like, Clearly, and the you know, I look at recovery as like you know, like train tracks. Like there's this gro these grooves, like you said, that have been calcified or mm -hmm. uh, crystallized in our brain. Of this is how I treat this person. This is what I do in this situation. And it's about just like like weakening those and opening new grooves, just new making new neural pathways. You know, and so as soon as you just said, my dad valued academic excellence because I a very similar thing that I think is worth talking about. I just thought, oh my God, that is so cool that his dad 
just really wanted to set him up to win in life. Mm -hmm. His dad had obviously been through something that was like, you need to be able to do this and this and you need to get A's because I can't help you after this. Like I, the only thing I do have control of is instilling a wild work ethic in you. And that's what happened to me. My dad used to always tell me, and this might not be like the going science on what's healthy for kids, fine, but it really worked for me. My dad always told me life is not fair and you're always gonna have to work twice as hard to get half mm -hmm. as much. And then even when you deserve something, you're not gonna get it a lot. So I would come home with a B plus, but I studied all night and da -da -da, and there's the bell curve and the thing and I should be able to get an A. And he goes, life's not fair. You don't deserve an A, you got a B plus. Mm -hmm. you know? And that was really helpful to me. I mean, this is gonna sound wild, but my dad used to wake me up at two in the morning. Who cares why that was the time he was available? That's another story, but would wake me up at two in the morning and like drill me with vocabulary words wow. and the test for the next day and the whole thing, you know, and spell it backwards, spell it forwards. And the kicker of it is that figuring out the way your primary caretakers thought is super helpful, you know? I think it's super healing as well, you know? So my dad, he always wanted to make sure that I was prepared for anything. Cause the mm -hmm. whole thing is like, you can be prepared for this, but you're not prepared for all the things that are gonna go wrong. So SAT prep, we couldn't afford that. You know, people say that the whole Rick Singer thing with college admissions, it's unfair even without someone taking tests for mm. a rich kid. It's already unfair because at sophomore year, the rich kids start using SAT tutors. They say, you know, they already have an advantage. And he was very clear about like, yeah, you're gonna do all this, but then a boy you have a crush on is gonna come in holding hands with another girl. What's gonna happen? You're gonna forget to eat and this and that, you know. So he wanted me to be so good mm -hmm. that I could do it like with my eyes closed, distracted, hungry, all mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a bit of a tiger dad served you well though. It makes me, it makes me really emotional to think about it because um, I regret all the time that I, my ego needed to blame my parents for the bad choices I made or the bad instincts I had or the broken, you know, DNA or intuition because I look back and even even if what your parents are doing is malicious, there's just no way you cannot turn it into a superpower. There's just there's no way unless they cut off your leg or you know. But you know, my mom worked three jobs and then she came home and then she worked, you know? It was a mom, clean the house, would rearrange the house, you know, maybe slightly pathologically, you know, cause she didn't have control in other areas. But I always felt neglected. I spent most of my uh, <laughs> high school and years as a child in the white Flint Bloomingdale's just uh -huh. walking around, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just walking around shoplifting. But, I, but what I didn't realize I was doing at the time, my narrative was I'm a neglected child. I was talking to adults. I was talking to the cosmetics girl. And then I was like, can I do the perfume? And then I would go up to a stranger and be like, excuse me, would you like to smell this perfume? You know, like I mm. learned how to talk to adults. I learned how to speak publicly, you know, and it was, kind of a weird, wild, brilliant gift that I got that mm -hmm. I take no credit for. You know, people are like, you work so hard. I'm like, I only work 12 hours a day. What do you mean? I still, and then I lived in Roanoke, Virginia and we lived on a farm. And as soon as, you know, you got home from work at seven o'clock, then the work started. Then you mm -hmm. start cleaning out the stalls and you start getting the hay and, you know, so, I got really, really lucky that I just inherited this work ethic and it's just normal to me. Yeah, but it's so beautiful how you reflect back on your parents in that way. Like that's actually really helpful to me. I just think also, you know, in program we go, oh, take a contrary action. If you wanna text your ex, just don't. If you think it's a good idea, just don't do it. Call me first. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that's just the, the deal in the beginning. But to me, I try to take contrary thoughts. And I also don't take my thoughts that seriously. I look at my inner monologue as like a science fiction movie. It's like Star Wars or something, you know? It's just mm. like, oh, Rich doesn't like me. That was weird. 
that was weird. Whether you do or not, it doesn't matter, you know? And it's like, I just made that up in my head. Like, what was that? No one needed that. And then uh, Argus Hamilton, a comedian that's been around forever, sure. legend. He- um, No, Argus. <laughs> he said once to me, give your character defects names and make them people that are trying to help you. Mm. And they're just trying to help you at the wrong time. That's cool. That helped me have so before. much compassion, you know? So girl will walk by, gorgeous, whatever, young, charming, dating a guy I used to have a crush on. I'm like, oh, what's with that? Whoa, Jenny, what was that? Why are you trying to, I know this sounds great. I'm really encouraging. What? Trying to make you feel better. It doesn't, yeah. this isn't how it looks by the way. Yeah. I'm not this crazy, but I'll be like, okay. That wasn't me. That was my inner child. That was old programming. Why did that happen? Because she's probably lovely and I'm not meant to be with him. So why did my body want to do that? Oh, number one, a thousand years ago, my body would just like be procreate at all costs. You know, that's some old shit that, you know, is unnecessary. Mm. I have an IUD. Why are you trying to procreate? It's, it's <laughs> not, that's not what we're doing here. Like fast forward to the present mm. and then um, go like, what was that? Oh yeah, okay. I know what that was. That was just me. If If I villainize her, then I, she's less pretty and less of a threat to me. Like, what am I doing? Right. And then I can kind of just break it apart and go, oh, you know what? That was really helpful a long time ago when family members had secret families and were right. picking women over me that helped me take an action to then involve myself and charm them and try to get their attention back because I equated it as safety or whatever. And then I just like kind of break it down and go like, nope, not mine, not mine, not mine. Yeah. It's like the way you would go. Or thank you, Jenny, but maybe later, not now. Not her, this yeah. isn't the time. Yeah. When the, <laughs> the homeless meth addict breaks into my house, which will be any day now, that's when I need, yeah. I need Bill to get off the bench. Maybe he's coming to return your computer. And they're also, <laughs> And they're also, pit I look at them as, I look at thoughts as my inner child's pitches. You know what I mean? Mm. That person might be trying to steal from you. Be careful. Mm -hmm. No, he's not. Why? Why? Mm -hmm. Steal what? Yeah, that's not gonna make the slate. You know what I mean? It's this just one not, might go to pilot, but maybe no further. No, exactly. But like, you know what? Sit on the bench. I love you. Y you are only trying to protect me and you're only trying to keep me alive. So half mm. of it is nature, whose our brain's only priority is to, keep us alive. Yeah. Not, I hate this, right? I'm not, I mean, it's like, how can you get your brain from surviving to thriving? And anytime I make a, de a decision, I try to go, is this just me trying to survive or is this me actually thriving? Mm -hmm. Cause I, why am I in survival mode? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just that question alone, why am I in survival mode? Even if you try to steel man that, that argument, whatever comes up, it's gonna break down. Cause there generally isn't a reason for you to be in survival mode or some kind of flight or fight response to a relatively benign interaction. And why do you hate your future self so much that you're not willing to think this way, mindlessly and consciously? Why are you not trying to make a positive contribution to your future self? Because I don't deserve it, Whitney. Okay, how's that going? You know? I don't know, I've been doing it my whole life. It's worked pretty well for you. That's the other thing. A lot of these things work well for people, you know, until they don't. Right. I think the thing is, it's scary to change. And if you have, if if that groove is dug so deep, uh -huh. and you're telling somebody like, "Hey, listen, like this thing you've been doing your whole life, like you should probably discard it or think of a new way," like. How do you even begin to do that? And if it's something that's not tangible, you've been gambling your whole life, throw the cards away. You've been mm -hmm. doing drugs your whole life. Get, don't go to a bar and get rid of the drug, you know? But it's like, 
things like eating addictions and sex addictions and behavior addictions like this. These are things we move through the world. All we have right. to do at least three times a day. Right. You know, sorry, sex. I don't have sex three times a day. I'm not. I don't have that kind of time. Right, which is you know, it's it's something you have to have a lot more compassion for than the drug addict or whatever. Or you know, because because you have to eat three times a day, like you're confronted inevitably with this, you know. David Sinclair situation. would not say you have to eat three times a day though. So maybe. <laughs> he definitely would not. <laughs> There's a lot of people right now, a lot of people who've been on this podcast who would say, you shouldn't have to worry about three times a day. Well, let's just say once a day minimum. See what works for you. Yeah. <laughs> How about that, right? I am someone that has migraines so, that did not work for me, so. Mm, right. But I also, you know, I know I'm kind of joking, but it's sort of like the, this is gonna get me in too much trouble. So I'm not gonna set it up that way, but I will say that, um, you know, intermittent fasting, like don't eat all, I'm like, we invented that. Women, I was anorexic for right. 20 years. I think I there's a lot that. of people and, and probably a lot of men who are using intermittent fasting and fasting to, sure. to hide their dysfunctional eating. Sure. Yeah. We, which is, you know, it is fascinating that you have brought all this um, to life just in general. I, I also wanted to just bring up a couple of things just that you just inspired me about, like just little tools you know, that I think we all sleep on that are so basic and everyone has access to, which are is music and animals for, as that medicine. That was my next thing. I wanted to get into the animals. So go. Tell I me. just want to say something that really helps me is that I'm very weird about, um, I don't need to over pathologize it, but I'm very intentional about the way I use music to help my life and help my equilibrium in my brain. So when I drive around, I don't listen to music. Um, I'll listen to podcasts sometimes, but other times I'm like, I need this time to just hang out with myself. Like mm -hmm. I need, we don't do a lot of processing. I was at, you know, Cheer, the um, uh, cheer, uh, about Nevera Cheerleaders. It's a show on Netflix oh, yeah, yeah. about the best yeah, cheerleaders, yeah, sure. you know, in the world. And um, I was talking to one of them and, and athletes, there's so much to learn from great athletes because just the concept of discipline and the concept of knowing what you need and not being able to fake it. You know, if you have an injury, you can't be like, I'm fine. Like you can't mm. be dishonest with yourself or other people because you could get permanently hurt or you could hurt someone else, yeah. especially in cheerleading because if you're in the bottom of a pyramid and you're like, oh no, I'm fine. If you're people pleasing or being codependent, a lot of people could get hurt. Right. So there's just no concept of not telling the truth about your limitations where I think, you know, non-athletes really, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm good. Like I can, I can lift that. Like there's a, you know, a respect for uh, reality and a living and uh, sort of radical realism. And so I was talking to um, Morgan, who's the sort of a big star of the show. Mm -hmm. She's she's just the, she's just the, mo the grittiest, um, most incredible. It's a very triumphant story of what she came from and, you know, how she had to overcome some obstacles. And, you know, it's about, in, you know, it's not even about inches uh, when it comes to cheerleading. I mean, it's about, you know, iotas, like mm -hmm. the tiniest centimeter you miss and it's, over, so it's about radical perfectionism. So you're like, oh, these people must be nuts, you know, uh, and unrecovered. And I remember, I went and saw it in uh, when I was in Austin and uh, the live show. And I said to Morgan, because for the last two years she's just gotten famous off this television show. And I was like, what are you going to do, like for the summer? And she's like, oh, I'm taking the entire summer off just to process. Mm. And I was like, how old is she? 19. Right. Almost that's, 20. That's definitely like a new thing. But yeah. like, it wasn't like to like sit with my crystals. It wasn't like that. It was like to, pro I was like, mm. what does it mean process? She's like, the last two years have just been a whirlwind. I'm just gonna like write my journal and just process. I was like, what, since, 
I didn't even know that was an option. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I go through life just like, well, that's over with, that's over with, that's over with. And we don't take time to just go. Or like, this is the moment to double down and capitalize. Like, it's not gonna be like this forever. Mm -hmm. I have an opportunity, better make this work. Like now's the time to hustle overdrive. And then I'll process but, later, but you gotta yeah. schedule that processing time. You know, yeah. and we get it a little bit with our 10th step at night when, you know, the 10th step is anyone can do, even if you're not in program of just sit down, you know, before you go to bed and get a pen out and just go like, how do I, how did I do today? Like, am I, okay, that, that wasn't great. I probably shouldn't have said that. Oh, I interrupted her in the meeting. I should probably tomorrow just apologize right now. Hey, you might not even have noticed this, but I interrupted you earlier and I'm sorry, that was rude. You know, whatever. And then huh, it is the best feeling in the world to apologize to people. That's what I'm addicted. I'm addicted to apologizing, mm -hmm. but not in the way that every woman just moves through the world apologizing constantly. It's not, I'm the opposite on that because I, <laughs> my, yeah. my shit with that is so You're talking deep. about owning your behavior. Owning your behavior, you know? It is just a way to, this is too gross of a metaphor. It's just like taking the best piss of your life, you know? Cause you're mm -hmm. just like removing all that guilt, all that shame. We say you can't stay clean on the shower you took yesterday. So it's basically a way of just clearing the slate of any resentments, guilts, like, oh, you know what? I don't like the way I responded to that. That was, you know what? Next time I'm gonna do it better. Great, living amends to myself. You know, just process, locking in mm -hmm. the growth. I also call it because mm -hmm. we hear so much brilliant stuff right now. You know, I'm gonna listen to Ritual and then I'm, I'm gonna listen to Ritual and then I'm gonna like go for a walk and like process what he just said, lock in that growth, you know? So many people are like, I heard this podcast, it changed my life. I'm like, what'd it say? Uh, something about <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. And you're like, we're the same way when we read books now, we're like just, I can read five pages and go, I could not tell you what I just read. Right. If I'm not gonna be sort of mindful about well, it. Well, there's also the weird dopamine inducing experience of reading that thing, or maybe, you know, the, the inspirational quote that you see on Instagram and then, and then feeling accomplished mm -hmm. when you actually haven't channeled any of that into any behavior modification. Nothing, it's nothing. Yeah, and um, the music thing is just something that I, I just kind of realized about myself um, because I said it out loud to people and they were like, what? where I'm so emotionally reactive to music. You might not be, or your listeners you know, may or may not be, but know what activates you. Like know what is a natural form of Adderall or whatever people take today, like energy, coffee, whatever, where I won't listen to musical, I won't waste music. Mm. You know what I mean? I won't waste it. Like Meaning I, it's, not, it's not a background soundtrack, it's intentional to you know, induce a state of, being or awareness totally, to because, elevate your experience. And I don't just like turn on the radio because I don't know what I'm gonna get hit with. If I hear a Billie Eilish song, I'll be the whole, my whole day shot, you know, because I'm like in my emotions and now I get, so I Powerful know. Powerful Billie Eilish. I know you, well, just, you know, <laughs> she's, I'll, you know, something emotional, sorry, Sinead mm. O'Connor's nothing compares or something, you know, you never know what emotional landmine you're gonna mm. like fall into that's gonna derail you. Uh, and conversely, you can really get a lot of energy from music. I mean, of course, power songs, you know, your gym mix, whatever, but I will be very mindful about what song I'm playing when and what I need to hear. And I'll go like, okay, I'm feeling kind of tired. I'm gonna go to the gym. I'm gonna have some coffee, but you know what? I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna put on Beyonce, CEO, whoever your person is, you know, MXPX or, you know. I can do this all day long, yeah. uh, but I'm now, I'm now like, uh oh, he's gonna think I'm corny if I mention DC. Henry Rollins, I don't know. Henry um, Rollins. And it, it will, knowing the impact it has on me, I will use it to my advantage. And a lot of people are like, how'd you do that? I'm like, I just, play, how'd you write that book? How'd you write that script? I just blasted 
Rage Against the Machine for mm -hmm. two hours. Let's, you know, so that's something I think we kind of sleep on sometimes. Right. Let's talk about the animals. Okay. I want to know how this deep relationship that you have with animals began. And I want to talk about the, the kind of healing modalities that um, you've explored with this. I mean, particularly equine therapy. I know you've talked about it a lot, but I think it's really powerful. Thank you. I'm mm. gonna, um, I feel overwhelmed. I'm just gonna say that out loud. And I'm gonna, I'm just got a little bit afraid of being boring. That's like one of my biggest fears and I just caught it and I'm just gonna slow down. Um, so not being boring. What's that? <laughs> anything, I'm, I'm like, it's getting warm in here. It's getting hot. <laughs> I know, it's freaking hot sweating. out. We have to turn the air I'm conditioner off for this thing. So <laughs> I am in a swamp on your very expensive chair. Um, so growing up again, this is a thing I got lucky for. I thought it was, you know, horrible abuse at the time because no one was around to raise me. Mm -hmm. And I spent most of my summers in uh, Roanoke, Virginia and a couple years of my teenage years. Um, and I lived with my aunts. Um, things were just too chaotic at home. You know, I know this is something you don't hear a lot in like LA and New York, but in other you know, there's more to America than just that. In the mm. Midwest, sometimes in the South, it's not that unusual to go live with your aunts or your grandfather, or, you know, whatever, if things are um, getting a little bit hectic, uh, which they were to say the least. So, um, but I always was with my whole, every summer, my whole childhood, I didn't go to camps. I didn't go to, um, I mean, I did do the YMCA camp one that left a mark. Yeah. That was, I need to talk to my EMDR <laughs> therapist about that camp. But you'd go, you'd go to the country in the summertime. And I just spent time with animals and it was the safest I felt. So, you know, I had had, you know, sexual abuse as a child and adults were just kind of scary to me if they were around at all. So mm -hmm. between those two things, you know, kind of auspicious, kind of not, but I, um, my aunt, uh, my aunts Lisa and Kathy live right next to each other. Both people who are uh, just animal people. I come from Appalachia. So you had two aunts and they both lived in separate houses on the same like farm exactly. or something? Okay. Same road that just sort of forked. Got and it. one personality was sort of incredibly, um, you know, Southern charm, perfect China all the time, house is perfect. Uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter, what's that song? Um, uh, he thinks he'll keep her. Um, just about everything was right in place, the perfect napkins and the perfect and the homemade everything and everything from scratch. And then my other aunt was just like the most punk rock animal bitch you can imagine. She had 15 cats, something like 18 dogs and everyone in the neighborhood or surrounding area, if their dog had a medical problem, they couldn't afford to fix, you would just wake up and there would be like a basset hound tied to the tree. So we would take in new animals wow. all the time. People would just leave puppies in bags, stuff like that. And then there were tons of horses. And I just, they were the only people I could understand. I couldn't understand adults. There was just so, I mean, look, if getting into whatever neurodivergence I have, you guys feel free to diagnose me. I'm sure it's just as valid as whatever <laughs> doctor told me this 20 years ago. Um, but horses, I could understand. Dogs, I could understand. Cats, I could understand. The adults, mm. I couldn't understand because they would act one way and then we would go to church on Sunday and it said, don't lie, don't cheat. And then they would lie or do, and I'm like, I don't understand this. Or they would be like, all right, I love you, love you. Totally indirect communication, totally sloppy communication. I'm fine, no, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. As a kid, you're like, I know you're not, but why would you lie to, uh, so I must just be dumb or a piece of shit, or I just have to doubt everyone all the time. Yeah, and it just, it erodes your ability to trust. 
And I just was like, I must just not, I felt very lonely around people. I felt very stressed out around them. I couldn't understand them. I didn't understand their value system. It was obviously an alcoholic home. So people were very distracted with lots of things. And horses, I understood. Horses are very direct communicators because they're prey animals. They don't lie. They don't try to charm you or beguile you. And they're very fair. They're very fair. And, and I do very well when something is clear and fair. There's nothing you can say. It's not about what you're saying. It's about how you're saying it, mm -hmm. you know? So if it's like, I love you, I'm like, that's scared. I'm scared of that. I'm scared of a dissonance between what someone's saying and how they're saying it. And mm -hmm. that's a lot of the codependent, you know, a lot of his, you know, we've inherited it, you know, epigenetically uh, and, you know, religion probably didn't help, but you never say what you're actually thinking. And, right. but can you pass the, can you pass the, can you pass the pepper mm -hmm. or not? Or you're not, oh, okay, well, right. can you do anything? Cause you couldn't pass the ball in high school oh, either. Oh, you couldn't do that. And then there's an explosion yeah. and there's a huge fight over seemingly can I have nothing, that or you... but everything is loaded. It, always. Yeah. With so much and between each other too. It's like, oh, look who decided to show up. Uh, <laughs> something is little, hey, stranger. Yeah. I'm like, that's not a stranger, that's our uncle. We just saw, mm -hmm. you know? So all that sort of like resentment-y, indirect communication. And then I'm around animals and I'm like, I get it. If a horse kicks at you, you were too close, mm -hmm. got it. And being a prey animal, the horses are very adept at, at reading behavior, right? So they understand like, and so there, you can't have dissonance between what you're saying and how you actually feel, you're right? Because they, away can, with root, they root that out. So it, it's like a, a great like vehicle or almost a mirror exercise for integrating your emotions with your words. That's what you're One, saying, Being right? authentic. Yeah. Yeah, and because sometimes you do have to tell this to people, like animals don't know what you do for a living. They don't know you're famous. They don't, they don't care. All they do is value serenity and tranquility. They also don't need you to beguile. They can't like, um, uh, you can't control an animal that is a horse or a prey animal with treats. Like they have grass, they already have food. They mm -hmm. need nothing from you. So the only motivation, a truly wild and not broken spirited horse, the only benefit of being around you would be tranquility or that you have leadership qualities and that you become the lead mare. And so what's so incredible about horses, other prey animals, but let's just talk about horses, is they want you to be regal. They want you to be powerful. They want you to be in charge. Whereas most people want you to be small, Right, they want you to be humble. They don't want you to talk too much about your accomplishments because then that makes me feel bad. I don't want you to be in charge. I don't want you to be the alpha. I'm the, I'm the fucking alpha man. Horses are just like, they want you to be in charge because we're a herd, right? right? So you're only as strong as your weakest link. So it's like, a if a horse doesn't respect you, it usually means you don't respect yourself. How are you carrying yourself? Do you find yourself apologizing to the horse? Are you being results oriented? Are you trying to take a selfie? The horse doesn't know what that is. All it feels is your desperation. Mm. All it feels is fear of this isn't going well, fear of not getting a photo, fear of not looking good, fear of, and it's just like mm -hmm. fear. And then it has to look around and go, are there any bobcats around or cougars that we need to worry about? So they wanna get away from you. Right, or does the horse like me? The horse doesn't like me. The fact that you're asking that question is mm -hmm. the reason it doesn't like you. So it's basically like, it's just horses are repelled by insecurity, microman, all the things that I'm trying to minimize uh, in myself characteristic wise, they're repelled by. So you really have to learn if you wanna spend time with a horse in a way that's not abusive and that you're not gonna embarrass it or degrade it or um, exploit it, you have to be the kind of person that that horse would wanna hang out with. Right, so in an equine therapy context, like explain that modality sure. and how that works to you know, help 
somebody who who does come in with all of these you know sort of issues how does the how does working with the horse help heal that person i think that before you even spend any time with a horse it's already so educational when i say you're a horse person probably I haven't spent a lot of time with horses. Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of people are like the horse. But I'm super interested about this, and the more I learn about it, like I, I want to know more. They about They are this. an actual yeah. mirror. But we are, of course, now talking about horses. I'm not talking horses that carriage horses that are abused or horses that have been broken. So a lot of horses that have been trained to let anyone get on them, their spirit is broken. Mm-hmm. They, they're not a horse that you want to do equine therapy with because they're gone. Like they have surrendered to the fact that they You've are just just. Prostitutes, they have nothing left. They have no connection with you. So the first thing is establishing a connection with a horse where you're gonna want it to run up to you and hug you. The first thing we do when we see a horse, what do we do? You wanna pet his nose and see if he'll- Can you you imagine if someone walked up to you and just started touching your face Mm -hmm. that you had never met? Right. How disrespectful (laughs) that is. It's just the most basic, it's the most basic thing. And I think that for us as, as humans, we have just forgotten common sense. Like, can you imagine if I just jumped on your back and asked you to give me a piggyback on a hike? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, yes, horses were bred to do this. Of course, horses, I, hear, I, hear, I know everything that everyone's thinking as I say this, but if you want to get the medicinal benefits from this animal, you have to think this way, you know? And it helps train your brain to go, that person was kind of a dick. Why was that guy such a dick? And then you go, wait, why did I give him a hug before, wait, his wife was, I sort of said hi to his wife, for, or whatever it is, whatever forensics you need to do, you get to take responsibility for what's going on around you and the way people re- react to you. And you get to get a very fair assessment of your energy mm. and what you give off, you know? Are you giving off true alpha shit or are you frazzled and scared? If a horse, if you need a horse's approval, that horse is like, I can't, I, you're not safe around, like you are a problem for this herd, you know, or something's wrong with you. They don't understand that when someone's uh, behavior and thoughts are incongruous, because horses don't lie. They Mm -hmm. don't do shit like that, you know? And also horses, they resolve conflicts and it's over. They don't hold on to it. They just kick each other in the face and then it's over. Instead Mm -hmm. of just like, I can't believe that happened. They don't hold on to that because it's not auspicious for them because it it takes up too much energy and they need to be energy conservation experts because you never know when you're gonna get that next patch of grass, Mm -hmm. you know? So vultures fascinate me too because of the way that they have to save energy. And that's something we don't think about as humans. It's like, why are you just wasting your energy on all this stuff? You know, I, I, they've taught me about energy conservation. You know, I now think about my life as every day I have a hundred energy dollars and by five Five o'clock. If I've spent sixty percent, you know, sixty dollars of my energy dollars, and then someone's like, "Do you want to go to dinner?" and I'm like, "Well, I still have to work out, and I still have to read that script, and I still have to write some jokes, so I'll be at ninety energy dollars." And this person takes like forty energy dollars. I can't, because mm-hmm. then I'll be borrowing from the next day, and then I'll be on a deficit. So that helps me, and that's how horses operate, also. So growing up, when I was around horses, I always felt safe because I all their their behavior was always fair. You know. Their behavior was always fair and they only think to take care of themselves for the most part. And when you watch horse behavior a lot, when they do interact and quote, help each other, it's always an equal exchange and it's always to be of service. So they'll groom each other, you know, side by side, even if they just got in a fight 10 minutes ago, Mm. it's all of service. And so I was just 
the only time I felt sane was around horses. The only time I truly understood what was going on was around horses and I was obsessed with them. I was also obsessed with the discipline around it and putting the saddle away and cleaning the saddle. And you know, I just loved the ritual of it. I loved the responsibility required. I loved how sensitive horses are because I'm really sensitive. So, you know, I have misophonia, which is when you just hear things yeah, yeah. just really loud and horses have super hero hearing so he you know my horse hears bamboo from a mile away and I'm like you heard that I heard oh, okay mm. all right I'm not crazy okay good mm. this is probably an advantage like a genetic advantage and then it makes you think about like oh what was my purpose or my ancestors purpose in tribal times because I also have trouble sleeping and then I learn about the night watcher theory which is you know a lot of people that are insomniacs their ancestors 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 were the people in the tribes before street lights and security guards that stayed up all night mm to look for threats and assess right. threats. They were the night watchers and the night watchers bred with the night watchers and they, you know, uh, basically have a circadian rhythm that's just off. They just inherited it, you know? It's a superpower, but not, you know, if you're trying to sleep 10 to six. And, right. um, but th it gets very um, empowering. I hate that word. Um, too many idiots use it, <laughs> sorry. Because horses take responsibility for themselves and you study their breed to know more about them dogs as well. You know, I only rescue dogs obviously, but when you go what the first thing I can do to understand this dog is understand what it was bred to do and understand where it gets its dopamine mm -hmm. and what it needs. Like, you know, so I was on the um forward path mindset. What is that? Path forward? I don't even know what that is. It was uh, the ancestral, um, the guy you just had on, whose dad was in the Oh, home. Long Path. Long Path, long path. sorry. Okay. I'm so dyslexic. Yeah, yeah. Long Path, I said path, I don't know what I said, forward path? Forward path. Okay, well, I'm starting that. That's a path I'm too. starting that, okay. okay. <laughs> I Give just that. got my train. Andrew mark. Yang might already be <laughs> yeah, doing that, yeah. but like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so then you start going like, oh, well, this is a uh, Australian shepherd. They're bred to herd. They cannot see the world in any other way. When humans are standing too far apart, an Australian shepherd needs to herd you. They mm -hmm. need you two to get together or else they're gonna bark, they're gonna freak out, they're gonna tear up your shit. And we go, what's wrong with this dog? Why is it tearing up? It's not a dog, it's no, an Australian it's shepherd. It's doing what it's supposed it's to do. It's doing what it is wired to do. I know so many people in LA, they're like, I wanna get a Husky. They have such pretty blue eyes. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Do you run 20? You're the only yeah. person that should have Husky 20 miles a day. We have uh, we have Great Pyrenees. Oh, wow. Which are beautiful regal animals. Wow, 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 wow. Really. And then go like- But they like, need a lot of, you know, like they need a lot of exercise. And I think it's too hot for them here. I don't mm -hmm. think it's great for them environmental wise, but. I mean, it's also, I, I that's a different conversation for mm -hmm. another day because also I think that all these animals are adaptable and resilient and there's mm -hmm. always some kind of solution. So, you know, people's biggest thing is I can't adopt a big dog or I can't adopt a dog, I don't have a yard. I'm like, I don't have a big house. And dogs are dead animals, they like small. They mm -hmm. like small places. The more territory that they believe they have to protect, the more stressed out they get. Yeah. So actually you get a calmer dog when you have a smaller space yeah. or, you know, keep mid more. So that's not, that doesn't apply to that, but just in general. And um, so it made me start asking like, oh, I was so reverent of the ancestry, what they were bred to do, yet completely oblivious that that would apply to humans. Like, and humans are animals. Like just the idea of mm -hmm. like, oh, then why do I do this? Oh my God, well, my ancestry is Appalachia. Why do right. I have this superhero hearing? Yeah. And why am I so uncomfortable in small spaces and elevators? Oh, right, my grandfather was in coal mines. Right, why would we be any different? 
Why are we not all in nursing homes asking our grandmothers, our great aunts, like, what was our, my grandfather like? What was my great great grandfather? And then something very spooky happened that I'll just tell you, and we'll get back to the medicinal qualities of horses. Um, I did something called family constellation, mm. which is what? Dude, my wife's all about this. Go ahead. <laughs> Am I your nightmare? <laughs> no, it's great. So I'm, I will say it loud and proud. I believe it's a pseudoscience. Uh, I don't believe it's a science. Maybe I'm missing something, but I also believe that all humans, we know so much more than we think we know. Like all knowledge has to be verbal. It all has to be written. We forget about our intuition. We forget mm -hmm. how much information we already have. And I think that I remember one time, um, there's this psychic that I went to way, way back in the day. And um, everything she said was right. And I was like, Oh my God, she's psychic. Uh, and then I was like, wait a second, ask me um, about my uh, relationships. Or I, 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 you're the psychic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can't decide what to do between these two guys I'm dating. Mm. I can't decide which one. Like, like there's this one guy, uh, his name is Jim. And um, you know, like he's really like, I really like him, you know, but like, I don't know. And then there's this guy, Kevin, who is like, he's so normal. Like he's so supportive. Like he, I don't know. I just can't decide. You're Which not gonna, one should I? You're not gonna end up with either of them. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, he's psychic. We have no idea how much right. information we are giving with the way we say things and our nonverbal sure. cues. And the more, the more one knows about how you're wired, it's easier to predict. You know, you that person can see what you can't see, which is that you'll default to your behavior patterns, better or worse, and end up with the person that you kind of historically have always ended up with, despite your best intentions to be with somebody else. For sure, but what she said was like, Jim, Jim, Jim is not the right match right now. I'd be like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you're right. But the, I already knew that. Right. I, I needed someone to say what I already knew. Jim is. <sighs> I mean, he's like, he's really not like when we're, right. when we're. But you're probably more likely to end up with Jim. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, the at thing. That time, yeah. Yes, for sure. But the way I was saying it, the way that I was apologizing for him, I was defending him, et cetera. You know, so to me. You're when, telegraphing. You're already this. defending this person. You're already, but like, look, he doesn't have, like, he, he doesn't do great at like movie theaters, you know? But like when we're alone, it's like you're mm. you already everyone already knows we're all so psychic. Yeah. We just kind of are like, um, and so that is something that you know to think about as I say. So family constellation, someone basically comes and here's the other thing that it does that is a miracle. Even if nothing else happens about this, they encourage you to just quite simply ask your living ancestors questions. We are sitting on the biggest wealth of information and insight on the planet, and it's old people. Mm -hmm. We think they're stupid. We put them in homes, we lock them away and they're dumb and they don't know how to use Facebook and they don't know how to text and they don't know how to use Giphy's and da, da, da. Whereas like half of the issues that, I mean, you know, my mom's in a nursing home. I'll just go down the hall to some woman named Rita who no one will talk to anyway. And I'm like, what do you think about marriage? Like when's the best time? Right. <laughs> Better than this any treasure therapy trove. We just had a guy in here who was a hundred. I saw that. Did you see it? Yeah. Just all amazing. the wisdom is right there. And then one of the keys to unlocking radical compassion for my mom is she had a stroke. And then instead of asking, what can I get? What can I get? What do you owe me? What should I, you know, trying to get credit for taking care of you after you had a stroke. I, eventually my therapist was like, maybe you can use this, well, my sponsor, 
it's an opportunity for a fact-finding mission. Why don't you, every time you see your mom, ask her three questions about herself, mm. like before you came along. I literally, first thing I ask her, I'm like, so when did you and dad like get engaged? Like, what was that like? And he's like, she was <laughs> instantly, she was like, we got engaged, started, uh, you know, moved in together, planned the wedding. And two days before the wedding, he decided he didn't want to get married. And we had like, you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> you had no idea about any of this. Wait, what? Like you had bad things happen to you? That had nothing to do with But you I'm the only me. victim in right. the world that's ever had anything bad happen to them, you know? So I started asking her questions and then you just get more and more information. And then I find out she's, her dad is Jewish. I'm like, what? I didn't even know that. Like, I got to dig in where, what part, like, let me get into this ancestral shit, you know? And then um, the uh, family constellation provider, instructor, mm, counselor. Uh, what's someone the right when they do a thing? Guide. Practitioner. Mm. Practitioner? Sure. You have such a good vocabulary, I don't want to no, screw this no. up. So the um, family constellation practitioner comes in, asks you a bunch of questions, which by the way, if anyone answers like these questions, honestly, you're gonna learn a lot about yourself. It's kind of my thing with ayahuasca. I did do ayahuasca. I have positive things to say about it. But that said, the first night, I didn't really feel anything. And I was like, this is bullshit. This is all power of suggestion. This is ridiculous. Like anyone sitting on a pillow for six hours without their phone is gonna have some epiphanies. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the key is just being alone for six hours, you know? And then the next night, you know, that was just my ego coming up and whatever. And the next night I was able to have, you know, some stuff happen, but it wasn't like my life changed, you know? Things just like kind of got into focus. And so uh, she comes over and I don't know if you guys know this or not. Um, I try to hide it a little bit because it makes everyone think I'm crazy. You definitely can't do it when you have blue hair, which I did for quite yeah. a while, which is the horse, um, the horse carriage business all over this country. It, it is so upsetting to me that it's like, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm -hmm. Like I tried to live in New York. I can't do things in Midtown. If I hear the carriages, like I just, have like a conniption, like I go, I, I, I go it's off. It's crazy that that still exists, but I feel like that's gotta be dated at this point. Just that recent moment of that horse collapsing and that horrible carriage driver that went crazy viral. Like it feels like the world or at least the internet is united around the wrongheadedness of this antiquated, horrible practice. I mean, history will not smile kindly on what goes on with all of that. Yeah. Who was it that said um, a culture will be defined by how it treated its animals? Uh, who was that? Someone. I know. Who, I know this one. Jamie. I'm having a senior moment. Yeah. No, we don't, I don't know Jamie. Jason, <laughs> look that up. Um, Jason, call Jamie. No, it was some philosopher or writer. Well, what we don't but, realize is that when we abuse animals, we're injuring ourselves and we're screwing up our kids. So there's a psychiatrist that I used to talk to about this: of if you are putting your kids on a horse that it's never met, or putting your kid on an elephant at the circus, uh, putting your kid, you know. Um, That's what it. You always say this, and it's even on your website, right? Like, don't ride elephants. I do always say that. Yeah. I rode an elephant when I was in my early 20s and I didn't know. I think most people don't know. I think that's what's the worst part about it, that you are signing this contract, this karmic contract with the universe and you abuse an animal and everyone's worked so hard to convince you that it's not abuse and you're just being a good dad or you're just being a good mom. And so you're doing something that is corroding to your own integrity. You know, on some level it's wrong mm -hmm. when you see a bear in a cage, the size of a dog crate, you know, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing a dog on a, 
a bowling ball or a beach ball or playing basketball is, you know, that's wrong on some level, you know, if you were connected to your intuition. And I think a lot of us are just so disconnected from our intuition that we, we aren't, that's wrong, yeah. you know? So that is sort of like, just, it's a nice to be able to just go like, blameless, blameless to everyone is like, we are moving through the world like zombies in many ways and the animal stuff, even if you don't care about animals or you don't have animals, like this is how offline we are. Mm -hmm. This is how autopilot we are on, that we are seeing things that should be horrific to us or should be like, oh, I should protect that thing. I should help that thing. That's, and we're just like, here, take a photo. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how gone we are. That's how bad we need likes or whatever it is. I mean, Instagram and social media has been a little bit, it's been a step forward for uh, animal rights in a lot of ways because it, made more visible the way that mm -hmm. we just saw what happened in New York to the carriage horse. But then in another way, it's like, you get so many likes when you hold a baby tiger and you get so many likes when you're holding it a baby bear, you know? But we go, okay, what is the thing that pisses off a female tiger the most? Getting in between it and its young one. We all know this. Yet, if you see someone holding a baby tiger, we're like, hmm. Mm. Like, what do you think had to happen to the mother sure. for that to even, you know, we don't even do the math, you know, moving through the world. And I think the thing that is really tragic about it is this psychiatrist who was explaining to me that when we show our kids, it is appropriate, normal, even even fun to exploit something else for our own benefit, another living thing. We're taught to abuse our power. We're taught that. We're taught, oh, if I'm stronger than this thing, or if this thing can't fight back, I can use it to my sure, advantage. It's my prerogative. That's what you're teaching. And those examples have to do with the cuddly animals or the exotic animals, but the low hanging fruit here, like the big, the true elephant in the room is animal agriculture and what we do to animals for food. Mm -hmm. And even what we do to ourselves when we use animals primarily for food. You know, I'm working on this dog food that's half cricket protein because, you know, for every cow, it's 260,000 gallons of water. Like our meat addiction is going to put us in a drought real fast, you know? So even if you're not like animals, whatever. I mean, the other thing to try to, you know, get people to think about it is like, you're just shortening your life as well. If that's, you know, in terms of you're eating all these antibiotics, you know, my dad suffered from antibiotic resistance, mm. something that I don't feel like is talked about that much because he had eaten so many, you know, so many foods with antibiotics jammed into them. By the time he actually needed antibiotics, they just didn't work that Ineffective. well. So back to the family constellation thing, not because I expect that you're gonna believe that this happened, but I think, you know, I'm as cynical as they come. I, I feel like I can tell the story just as a comedian, I'm always the one poking holes in things. I'm always, I mean, even when Dr. David Sinclair came on my podcast, I managed to just embarrass myself more than normal because he was like, oh, when these mice took the NAD, they ran faster mm. and they were stronger. And, you know, and I'm like, well, how do you assess their performance? And he's like, well, we just look over in the cage. And I was like, well, how do you know they weren't running faster because they were scared of you, your shadow? I mean, it's pretty scary. I would run fast. And he was like, like, right. <laughs> it was just like, what? <laughs> well, how do you, is this how you move through the world, you know? So I'm always sort of questioning everything. And um, so for this experience to be this profound, um, I believe is, is worth sharing, which is that, um, so I am, I mean, debilitated by the noise of the horse carriages, seeing the horses, like I always figured, oh, I'm projecting onto myself because I work too much and I carry too much on my back and I'm probably just projecting onto this because I need to look to myself and I want to save all these horses when I really just need to focus on myself and uh, what's going on with me. And um, I did the family constellation. I'm talking to this woman. She asks questions. If you just go in, because I went in like, okay, of course. Well, you Googled me, so of course you would know that. Well, yeah, of course you know me and of course that, you know. And um, she asked me about my third grandfather. So my grand, grand, 
grandfather. And she's like, what's going on there? And I was like, I don't know. How would you know? Like nobody knows what their grand, grand, grandparents no clue doing. Couldn't have been good. <laughs> There's no way mm. it was great. Um, and <laughs> given it was like, I know history books aren't totally to be trusted either, but like, I'm pretty sure that there's some guilt and shame uh -huh. that I'm carrying from that person. And uh, she was like, well, how, how are we gonna find out what this person, and I was like, well, I guess we'll never know. Already the fact that I wasn't like, pick up the phone, call your uncle, ask a question. Mm -hmm. What's the, I'm already learning something. Mm -hmm. I'm already learning a lot about, and she also uh, said, that um, this man's wife, my grandmother, uh, used withholding love to punish him. And maybe that's a super common coping mechanism, but I was like, that's exactly what I do. Like that is exactly, exactly what I do. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes I justify it as I'm just taking a break and a breather and I'm gonna process something, you know, so that I can say what I mean, mean what I say, don't say it mean. But other times I'm just punishing. And I know that about myself and I really don't like it about myself. And the way she said it, it just was like, okay, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna keep moving forward in this because that was so spot on. And then I call my uncle and I'm like, what's up with the great, great grandfather, the great, great, grandfather, whatever. And then he's like, oh, uh, he died of cirrhosis. I'm like, oh, there it is. Mm. You know, because she had said he did something unforgivable and it lives within you. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, he drank himself to death. He probably cheated on my great-grandmother, which was probably pretty normal back then, but you know, whatever. She would punish him by withholding love. And then he went, oh yeah, this is super random, but he invented this hitch that kept horse carriages together. No way. They would fall apart, they would fall apart, and he invented this little hook. And in classic Cummings horrible with money fashion, uh, my grandfather, the big story was he, um, uh, in our family was he passed on investing in McDonald's because he said who would ever want a dollar burger. <laughs> so that's- <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Whether apocryphal or not, like you can get a lot of mileage out of that. It was just like, that's our family. So this guy, uh, great you know, ancestor, he invented this thing, but never got credit for it, never patented it, nothing. You know, probably mm -hmm. an unrecovered codependent who was like, oh no, just have it, take it, you know, whatever. And so um, that was wild. I mean, I just like burst into tears when I heard that because there was a, even if it's not true, I don't know how it, this all could have aligned to all feel true, but not be true. You know, um, I'm sure a lot of people worked in it. Cause I said, I was like, I feel like a lot of people probably worked in horse carriages back then. That was like the main business, right? And he was like, you know, but he invented like this, this thing that made everything else actually work mm -hmm. and um, reduced injuries, deaths of people, you know? So in his mind, he was doing something great. And then I guess I have some, it's invisible, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe Huberman can explain it, maybe Sinclair can explain it, whoever, maybe you know the guy that does Long Path, maybe he can explain it. But it was such a relief to go, okay, yes, I'm just a good person that cares about animals, but also like, this is bigger than me. What else that's bigger than me am I running around with all day, just being played like yeah. a puppet? And also if he figured out how to latch multiple carriages together for the horse to pull, he is responsible for increasing the burden on the horse, right? Which maybe Which at the time, informs your sensitivity around that burden. At the time probably kept people fed, you know, probably mm -hmm. did a lot of good things back then, you mm -hmm. know? And now it's this, you know, disgraceful thing we do as humans that whether we know it or not, it's, it's slowly corroding our self-worth and it's slowly corroding how we feel about other people. And at a time where we feel quote, more divided than ever and we, are more suspicious than others than ever. And we see stuff like that. You're just like, what kind of person? You know, it, it, yeah. it takes a toll on our ability to be around people, I think kind of in general. And um, 
So I was like, okay, yeah, this is a, a, a responsibility that I've inherited. Like mm -hmm. I need to fix that thing my ancestors did. Like I carried this with me and what else am I carrying? You know, it's a, you know, when people are like, we're in a simulation. I'm like, yeah, we're in a simulation. Like we're being played by our ancestors. Right. That's how I like to look at it. Yeah, and your job is to disentangle all of that bullshit and create new healthier pathways. Because if you don't, that's getting passed on to your kid mm -hmm. and that kid's kid. So these things will continue to play out unless you shoulder that responsibility for healing that and finding a better, you know, kind of way. And you gotta do some recon, you know? And um, I think for me in terms of the connection to animals, like yes, a, a lot of people that carry, um, I don't, why am, what, why do I have a problem with the word trauma? I feel like it's gotten like popular. Well, it's sort of been, it, yeah, it is, it, it's, it's been played out a little bit, yeah. I think, but I don't know what's a better word for it. Cause uh, now I feel like when I say it, it seems like I'm exaggerating. Cause so many people are like, they were out of oat milk. I am traumatized. Yeah. So now I feel like I'm exaggerating, you know, but I'm mm -hmm. talking about childhood sexual abuse. I think we can agree that's traumatic. Yes. I think, <laughs> I think, I think we, we're all on the same I page about that. I think we can that. agree, are we cool? Okay. And, but I also uh, think trauma is appropriately, you know, defined as things outside of that as well. I think people think of trauma in a limited context that it can only be you know, sexual abuse or yeah. physical abuse, et cetera. But it, which is some of my most impactful traumas were not any of those. One of them was um, I was in class one day and my tuition hadn't been paid and someone came and pulled me out of class, a teacher and said, we need to talk to you, your uh, bill isn't paid. I mean, I was like six or seven or something. And I remember that deep embarrassment. I mean, at that age, you know, mm. not understanding what was going on and it was embarrassing. And I think that um, moving forward, you know, they said that, I think it was Chris Rock that said, comedians become comedians to control how they're embarrassed. My biggest fear right. in life is being embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple of things like that that happened, you know, um, that I look back and I'm like, that's when it started. And, uh, you know, so the animal thing, um, you know, really was just, you know, as someone that from a very early age did not trust humans or was scared of humans, didn't understand what they wanted. Because when someone hurts you in that way at that age, they're beguiling you with something kind or nice, they're confusing you and then they're hurting you, you know? And then as an adult, you grow up to see innocent voiceless things being used for someone else's benefit, just ephemerally treating them like trash mm -hmm. or treating them like something just to serve them uh, that is voiceless. You know, horses right. can't email, they can't make phone calls. And I have some kind of like thing where it's like, I go a little bit into a, um, what is it when you just like go offline? It's not fight, flight or freeze. Like a fugue state? Maybe. I go into a rage, a dissociative rage, but I get very calm. Like I will smash someone's window with the dog in a hot car that's locked. Like it's no big deal. I have the hammer in my car. It's it's it. like, I'm not like, what are you? Reflexive. It's, it's very calm. It's just in that moment, I don't remember doing it. I don't know if you saw, oh, well, maybe because you were around for the Wolsey fires. Remember the giraffe? Mm -hmm. So I was mm -hmm. the I was the maniac that went to get it out. Oh, you did, wow. Remember that, that whole, yeah. like the it's giraffe? Also, I remember all the horses went down to Zuma, right? On the beach, yeah. 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 And so it was just like, it. people were like, why? I was the only person driving that. I drove wow. in a an electric car in a Tesla over like five power lines that were down. I mean, I look back and I'm like, it's actually just a weird miracle that I survived that, but it's not a choice. It's just kind of like, I, 
I don't feel scared in a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. I'm not scared of animals. So there's this deep programming inside of you that just takes over the operating system functions with your your conscious decision-making like offline. Because I know they're scared and I can't tolerate it. Like I know they know. Like, mm-hmm. and they're so, it's so wild that we just have decided that animals don't have any sentience at all. Like we look at monkeys and we think- Because it's too painful to recognize the truth around that. So it's just a convenient rationalization to make us feel better about our behavior, I think. And I think that it's interesting because I, you know, can stop the bleeding sometimes, but kids are really the ones that are, the ones that haven't been programmed yet, that haven't been brainwashed yet. I mean, Blackfish happened because this girl was like, I'm not going there, that's disgusting, and was crying. Kids know. Your kids know, they they're know like- Inherently, the- then they get, they get programmed into, you know, a, a sort of socially acceptable way of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And then that's how you think it's animals- It's fucked up. It's, it's fucked very up. fucked up. And it's fucked up that like even after Blackfish, like there's still like still there hasn't been enough changes. And, you know. Well, people have to stop going and yeah. people have to stop patronizing it. Like Chanel didn't stop selling fur because they loved animals. You know, people stop buying it. Mm-hmm. Cruelty free, same thing. It's just as capitalist. People have to stop buying it, which brings me to something that the horse carriage thing is a big opportunity to practice a modicum of empathy that I don't know that I necessarily want this tool all the time, but I think it really helps because a lot of the people that are patronizing these businesses are not Americans, they're tourists. And they ha- they have a different belief system around animals, you know? And I was, you know, I'm very in deep with the Korean dog meat festival, you know, and Yulin the thing. South one, the mm. North, I, I, whatever's happening there, I can't. <laughs> Which one is Yulin? <laughs> Yulin, yeah, that's Korea. Yeah, it's South Korea. Oh, Korea, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. North Korea, there's, I don't, right. we don't even Yeah, who knows what's no. going on Yeah, there. ask Rogan, I don't know, um, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, you go over there. Do you have a news feed from North Korea that we don't have <laughs> or sure. something? Every time you text me, I'm like, stop texting me. I, someone's following your phone. Um, but, uh, you know, I had to find empathy. Like you have to find common ground with someone. So someone that is killing dogs, chopping off their feet, letting them, you know, and then feeding them to other people that are ordering them and eating them. I have to understand your belief system. I have to empathize with you. I just have to. My dad, uh, my uncle, you do, you know, criminal defense turn. Like I have to find a way to empathize with you. And I had to build that muscle because it boils down to anyone that's poaching elephants in Africa, anyone that's killing dogs, they need money to fit. If, give me another job that gives me as much mm-hmm. money and I will do it. But I had someone, actually this person was um, from China, from Hong Kong, where I was like, I just think it's egregious the way y'all treat animals. I mean, like you're pulling gallbladders out of baby bears because you think that it's gonna be good for your skin. Like, what are we doing? You have bears and, you know. And he was like, Okay, well, we're pretty disgusted at the way you guys treat old people. Mm. You know? Fair point. And you're like, ah, okay. This is where the progress, get. let's get mm. gnarly. Like, let's get gnarly. This is the way, this uncomfortable conversation that is my nightmare to have, we just made some leeway. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of with these poachers and with the people that kill, you have to, these horse, horse carriage guys, I can't take away their livelihood. You can't be pro-animal and anti-human either, you know? So it's like, there is a little bit of this, like trying to find a way where everybody wins. Cause I don't think anyone wants to abuse animals, hurt animals. It means they don't have any other choices. And what's going on that this person, this was the only choice they had. And when people stand in line to ride the horse carriages in New York, I have to go, okay, they have a different value system. They see horses as cars, they see horses as property. You know, we put our 
half my family's in nursing homes. They would find that disgraceful. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of epigenetics here to unpack. There's a lot of ancestral trauma and so it, there's too much to unpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't solve the animal problem without compassion for the humans involved. And I think that's where a lot of advocacy, you know, kind of loses sight of, of the bigger picture and actually what would be productive in, in, in solving the problem mm -hmm. as opposed to being outraged about the problem. And then also realizing that like a little bit of a problem that we have at the moment is not that, you know, trans people are mean and, you know, Gen Xers want everyone to be canceled and people that abuse animals, you know, shoot them in the head as soon as they have a broken the problem is we're only hearing from the extreme people that are not particularly sane. And uh, and by sane, I just mean like, don't have great bedside manner and aren't interested in, in solving the problem or empathizing with you or understanding why you dislike them or why you said the thing you said and try to understand. Because a lot of times when you're going, you shouldn't say that word, you're engaging in ageism. We never talk mm -hmm. about that. You know, sexism, homophobia, we talk about all those racism, but like, expecting, you know, someone who's 60 to know that the term is now non-binary instead of, you know, gender creative or whatever, that's ageist. Like where would they have learned that? Like right. that's not in the the right. you know Pensacola. Starts to get really confusing. New if you're yeah, like have some compassion and go. Oh my God, <laughs> no one's this person doesn't know any trans people. This is a person. Let, let me you know help yeah. this person understand. I don't think this person wants to hurt me. So there's also we're not giving people the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. when they you know because there's no nuance online or whatever. But the same thing with animal, which is part of the reason I do feel the need to kind of talk about it sometimes. Not that I come off particularly well adjusted, but. Uh, a lot of animal rescue people are have come from trauma, sure. sexual trauma. Uh, yeah, a lot uh, aren't of course, healed, and it turns into "fuck you, you piece of shit," and you're yeah. fucking trash, and I'm gonna throw red paint on you on your way to work. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of like we haven't matured yet and healed our wounds in order to, you know, engage in this in a mature way, where we're actually solution oriented and not just on the drug of adrenaline. Yeah, I mean, the best way to problem solve and like the best comedians are the people who are willing to grapple with their wounds and engage in the healing process, right? Like, I think there's this idea, particularly with addicts, that it's our brokenness that gives us our specialness and that is our superpower that fuels that creative impulse or makes us special and unique and different. And the prospect of sobriety, whether it be, you know, substance sobriety or emotional sobriety, is perilous because you have to break up with that friend that you were reliant upon that you were convinced was the thing that was fueling your specialness or your talent or your comedy or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yes, that was literally an award-winning segue. Mm. It was good, right? I mean, that was like unbelievable. <laughs> I don't think people understand how deftly, like people, like that is as a comedian watching mm. someone do a segue that's not. And speaking of carbohydrates, yeah. uh, and you're just like, wait, what? That was masterful. You're not manipulating me, are you? <laughs> no, what right. for what? I'm already here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing else I, I could give you, Whitney. <laughs> And so, um, you know, horses just real quick, you know, animals, prey animals, dogs, cats, all of it. Um, I believe we are as a species sleeping on some of the most therapeutic tools that we have right here. Horses hold up mirrors to your behavior. Horse, horses will tell you everything about yourself that you need to know. They will tell you how you come off at parties. They will tell you what you're, you know, how obvious you're- who, who is a good candidate for equine therapy? So a couple things. Um, I also real quick, let, let me also talk yeah. about um, wolf 
wolf therapy for uh, boys. Because you've been to Wolf Connection, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter, we we had a birthday party for her at Wolf Connection. That is incredible. Was yeah. Bo there? The Wolf Bo? Uh, I'm sure he was. This was several years ago. Oh, so yeah, I don't he know was there. I remember the way. He's the, dead yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's okay. You know that. But that was an incredible experience being there. So I don't know if they did this for you, but you know, uh, what do we call like at risk youth now? Like, what, what's that called? I think it's what you just called it. Kids, is that what it is? I mean, aren't. Is, it, is there a new word There's for gotta that? be like a better word for that. I'm not like trying to know. get a new word. I'm not that guy, but I'm just saying like kids that, um, you know, were in and out of rehab in rough homes, foster mm-hmm. care kids, you know, kids that just didn't have a stable, consistent um, environment. And this was just boys. It, it don't get into it with the gender thing. You do not wanna do this with me. Um, and uh, so it's just boys um, at risk and they couldn't work with therapists. They couldn't work with, you know, juvie, uh, you know, social social workers, anything, because it was like all about being tough and fucked out and I don't have any feelings and like, no man, I'm hard and I'm this. And you're like, okay, cool. There's no getting through to this. This guy has a, mm-hmm. a shield up that mm-hmm. nothing's gonna, and the more I patronize and go like, how are you feeling? The more he's gonna just shut down and go inward and feel misunderstood. So one of the most sort of magical exercises we do with at-risk youth and you know, um, younger kids dealing with addiction, having seen violence in the home and such, and thinks violence is the best way to solve a problem, which I feel like that might need to come back that's a different story. Just some, just don't you feel like some people just need once, like to be hit in the face just once? Sure. There's you gotta like, people- it's, it's, it's like, you know, you gotta reboot the operating system when it starts to fragment or like this, the, the, little, the little beach ball starts to spin around, right? When I was 11, my mom slapped me in the face. I couldn't see for like 30 seconds. I had called her a hooker. I should have said sex worker, I don't know. But slapped me in the face, changed my life. Changed my life. I absolutely deserved it. And I was like, got it. Like that, I, I, every day I look back on that and I'm like, thank God she smacked me in the face. Like I, <laughs> I know mm. how to bite my tongue now, you know? But just so, you know, um, uh, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, um, the problem with social media is people got used to uh, talking trash and not getting punched in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just that's I say that half joking, yeah, but or like everything, every, you can have your plan and until you get punched in the everyone face. Everyone has a plan some, until yeah, they get yeah, punched exactly, in the face. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, just people who are just like, "Fuck you, you're trash," like you're, blah, and then it's like, if you said that in person, you would have been hit in the face. So you know, mm-hmm. so everyone's a little confused about how consequences work. Um, so Wolf Connection, you got these kids. They're you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 14, they've been in rehab, they've been drinking, they're in, you know, juvie, whatever. And the, uh, you talk about the wolves. So there's, you know, 10, some are crossed with German shepherds, you know, the whole story because people fight wolves. Um, I was gonna make a dig at Texas, but I love you, Texas. My mom is from Texas, but you guys really like to keep wolves in your basement. Um, and so there's all these rescued wolves and each of them are in a different enclosure. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you can see them all and every wolf is doing something different. One of them is digging. One of them is sort of like moving stuff around. One of them is like sniffing under their blanket. One of them is pissing. One of them is howling. One of them is just like scratching on the fence at the other wolf. One of them is, you know, sleeping. One of them is, you know, tearing some shit up. One of them is, you know, hiding, scared. And then um, you tell everyone, you know, what they're doing, explain their behavior. And then you ask all the kids like, who's the alpha in this pack? And they're always like, the one barking. And you're like, no, the one howling, man. Oh no, the one that's eating, obviously. And you're like, it's the one that's sleeping. Mm-hmm. Because when you have true power, you don't need to run around and show people how powerful you are. 
the best thing you can do is just take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanna fight someone, like maybe just go take a nap. Like that's the most gangster shit you can do. Yeah, and the confidence that all your your guys are gonna watch out for you. Exactly, exactly, Mm -hmm. you know? And like let people get you like hold your space, like be regal, you know? And, um, And so that's pretty cool. And then you go like, oh, this, you know, this guy, Bo, like, you know, he was taken from his mom too young and his dad was, you know, never around. So he's, you know, more feral. And this one had a brother that would beat up on him all the time. That's why he has half of an ear. And then you go through and you go like, which one's your favorite? Mm. And they'll be like, dude, I love Bo, man. That guy's, and you're like, okay, so dad stuff. And like, they can talk right, you through can, that. You can identify what their core issue is through which wolf they gravitate As long towards. as they get to be like a wolf. You know, mm-hmm, right. so like, I think that we just go all wrong about trying to communicate with kids because we don't talk about what they value. You know, we're just like, you're autistic. It's like, okay, can I get a metaphor to mm. like, you know what I mean? <laughs> can I get a, like, can you put this in terms that I either number one understand or number two care about? Um, you know, in terms of horses, um, there's a lot, there's so many incredible benefits from equine therapy, uh, specifically Agala, E-A-G-A-L-A and Liberty Training, which is basically what I do is I take horses that were abused and make them wild again. Mm. Horses whose spirits are broken, race horses, horses that were abused, um, you know, dressage horses. A lot of times they use studded bits or they put them through tunnels and scare them and they're not allowed to roll. And they're, so the idea you is- You can to- bring them back? Wow. You just have to give them freedom and treat them with respect. And Mm -hmm. you can, you know, my first guy, it took a little bit of time, um, you know, because I was still learning, but horses are so patient because they know your motives. So they're so patient with you when you screw up. They're so patient when you try too hard. You know, you just, for me in the beginning, I just had to say my inner monologue out loud at all times, Mm -hmm. just to make sure I'd be like, I'm insecure that you don't like me. And now you're walking away. Why would you walk away and smell poop? Like poop is better than me. Like, why do you like poop more than you like me? And then I'm kind of going like, what kind of maniac is trying to compete with an animal's desire to smell poop? Like that's just not me respecting this animal's nature and ancestry, which sometimes we do with human beings too all the time, men and women, kids, adults, whatever. So it was sort of like, oh God, I really need other people to behave a certain way in order to be comfortable. That's bad news because 95% 95% of the time, nobody acts the way I want them to. So I better right. figure out a way to feel comfortable without. So it really like hammers home that lesson. Inside job, dude. Yeah. And, um, and also, you know, we do with like young girls, guys need it too. But the whole deal with horses is they will test you constantly to see how much self-respect you have. They wanna see like what you're made of. They wanna see how much, you, cause they want you to like yourself. They want you to be confident. They want you to be regal. So they'll test you and they'll test you. And then you'll see people going, stop, stop. You're like, okay, let's talk through why that was how you were gonna solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Like in general doesn't work. Why did that horse even think it could get that close to you? Mm -hmm. Like, why did you even allow it in your space at all? You know, well, and then you start moving and then it, okay, great. I see who you are. I can, you know, so we take these energy extenders, they're not whips. And basically girls learn like, no, you have to say it the same way, your energy has to match where you can't go, no, mm-hmm. your communication has to be congress right. to get the result you want. And horses- Clear, affirmative, and like flexing a healthy boundary with honesty that garners respect. Correct, but it, it starts here. And like you mentioned boundaries earlier and we never got to them, but just the idea of boundaries aren't for them, they're for you. Mm-hmm. And if someone violates your boundary, you don't set another boundary, you remove yourself from the situation. That's a personal boundary, you know? So if I say no to the horse, no to the horse, and I'm being clear and it still is going to disrespect me, I just remove myself mm. entirely. And then we can start, start again later because you got your consequence and let's see if we can coexist, right. Right, right. you know? So it's like, cause we don't realize how much, you know, 
isn't it? 70% of communication is nonverbal, but we only focus on that 30% of just words, bullshit, bullshit. Like words are just bullshit, you know? And so it's such a healing experience to be around animals and just go, oh, that's why that person I never got along. Cause I was like, how are you doing? How is everything? Mm -hmm. Like I'm confusing. Cause this, I learned to be a confusing communicator and horses only deal with like clarity. Mm. Um, and then also just, you know, I mean, the things I've learned just, I mean, you go on and on. I mean, even about your breath, you know, because they are attuned to breath. So if I'm like, <laughs> they're gone, dude. Right. Cause that's how you'd breathe if you're scared. Your amygdala shut off. So when you're, I know humans, I'm sure come on and done it a billion times, you know, uh, of like the energy. So a lot of people come into their office and they're like, why is, why is everyone in such a bad mood? Right. You take responsible for your energy and how contagious it is. You know, energy contagion is so real. And when watching a horse, when it's around ugly energy or energy that doesn't serve them, that's depleting or confusing, just removes itself. That was a tool that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> yeah. Like it didn't even occur to me. You could just like leave. Uh -huh. If someone wasn't, you didn't have to keep talking, you know, just get up and go. You know, I didn't even know that was an option. Mm. I thought it was like, you get on the dance floor and you're dancing until your partner gets off. Mm -hmm. Like just go sit on the bench when mm -hmm. in doubt. Get off the dance floor. What are you doing? You know. So working with horses, there's there's no more rewarding relationship than having a personal one with a horse because you really know your value, um, and you really they keep you accountable on a daily basis. Can't stay clean on the shower you took yesterday. So it's like yesterday we had the best time, and he trusted me so much, and he invited me to get on his back, and we ran around, and then you walk by the next day while he's eating, he looks up and is like, "Hi." Mm. You're like, oh, I thought we had. Right. Didn't okay, we have, I have a thing? Earn like, it again. Yeah. I got to earn it again. How many, do you, ha you have your own horses or do you go somewhere else? Like, are you actually teaching this or what is the So situation? the teacher that I have is this um, wonderful girl, uh, Genevieve Ayer. She's a, a gala and liberty instructor. She works with um, kids on the spectrum and such. Um, you know, kids on the spectrum have incredible gifts when it comes to being able to communicate non-verbally mm. with animals. It's so amazing to see. And it's so amazing to watch a kid who people are always like, what, what do you want? I can't understand what you want. What did you want? And the horse is just like, got it. And they're just simpatico and this, and they found the person mm. that understands them. It's the most incredible thing. Like you're not broken. You're actually just you're like hyperintuitive, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's really cool to see. Um, you know, I don't, I basically will rescue the horse. I'll do the um, Liberty training. There's also, this is getting, you know, very granular. Um, there's a uh, practice called Being With Horses. It's a German woman. Um, it's, uh, I can send you the Kindle link about um, how to have an equal relationship with horses where you're basically have a 50-50 relationship that's yeah. based in respect. And you can have such, you can do such cooler things with a horse because horses, when they want to communicate with you, they start to mimic you. Mm. So I'll like jump over a jump and he'll jump over a jump and I'll do this and he'll jump up in the air. You know, it's like, it's the coolest thing in the world to be able to get to that point. But rescuing them, getting new one. I mean, it's just my kink. I just, I, yeah. I'm like, I love it so much. It's just Beautiful. the best. They're, so, they're just, they have eternal wisdom. I mean, they have eternal you know, they know when it's gonna rain. They, they, there's this famous um, story about a horse and I think it was Virginia that wouldn't go under a bridge, wouldn't go under a bridge. They're beating it, they're beating it, wouldn't go under a bridge. And the next morning it collapsed. I mean, mm. they just have all this, and we're just sitting on all this wisdom. We're just like running the other direction away from mirrors. Dog training, same thing. You know, people go, if, oh, I rescued this dog and its behavior is it what I want, I'm gonna return it. It's like, mm -hmm. you're missing the opportunity to learn yeah. so much about yourself from training yeah. this dog. So that's why I also love getting foster dogs and training them because I always learn so much about my lack of patience, about my need. I wanna give you a treat because I wanna make you like me. 
still, mm-hmm. I'm still doing this. <laughs> I'm still doing this. I had my ear bitten off by a dog. You know, I knew what to, uh-huh. I knew not to do that, but I conflated love and pity, which is a huge thing that codependents do. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna let him sleep in the bed with me, which is a dominant behavior, letting a mm-hmm. dog lick your face or be in the bed with you. And it had been taken from its mom too young and their mouth is their hands. So I got down to play with it one day and it just bit my ear off. Mm-hmm. Not out of aggression, just- Nothing personal. Nothing nothing (laughs) personal, they're just made of knives. And that was my fault. And I think it's really cool to work with animals because they won't do or say anything that will make you so mad that it's easy to blame. So if you and I have like a rough conversation and we're both kind of wrong in the way we handled it, you know, because we went to our trauma response, Mm I was like, well, if you hadn't had an office all the way out here, and then all of a sudden we're both assholes with horse animals, you're always the asshole. And that's such a great opportunity. Right. You can't, you have no one to blame. Right. <laughs> Which is like kind of yeah. the best thing ever because yeah, you don't yeah. have to spend all this time wondering whose fault it was, it was right. yours. Do you, how many animals do you keep in your house then? You rescue them and then get them to other places or you have like a menagerie running around? <laughs> it depends on who's asking. If animal uh, control, I have three. Mm. Um, but I have, um, I, I take- No in, one's listening. <laughs> If they saw that I'm yeah. on, they're definitely not listening. They're so sick we'll of me. We'll just beep it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I have um, a revolving door um, of animals. I have four dogs. Four dogs. Mm-hmm. Are you being honest? Yep. No. No, I do. I, yeah. This is, uh, you know what? Because it's it's just too boring. Uh, there's a lot of dogs right. that I've rescued. I gotcha. and I still pay for their medical care, but they live with other people and they have wonderful lives and stuff. So to me, rehabilitating an animal is always so therapeutic for me. You know, everyone's like, you're such a hero. I'm like, I get way more out of it than the animal mm-hmm. does, you know? So I do these, you know, there've been a couple dodo videos where I've rescued dogs that were just oh, cool. really like three broken legs and learn to, you know, they remind me how resilient we are. Because dogs, when they have, you know, two broken legs or missing legs, they're just like, let's fucking party. Right. Like they don't let it stop them. And I'm like, what's my excuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's oh, always inspiring those dodo girl, vid- videos of dogs that are, or all kinds of animals doing cool stuff. That girl yeah, was yeah. from high school was mean to me at the reunion. So <laughs> I'm gonna just totally regress into a petty bitch. Like this is, this dog had three legs and it's like, let's go to the beach. Like what, like why do you, and they are so confused when you feel sorry for them. They mm. don't wanna be pitied, you know? So I think, uh, yeah, and I think watching dodo videos, I think that's also a tool. Like I think scheduling positive content is key. You know, watch one dodo video a day. You know what? People are awesome. When you see a guy jump in a river to save a dog, like it's it really helps balance out the Twitter mob. Everyone's a psycho now. Yeah. I love the dodo. I have, I think three dodo videos because I had a pig that I rescued, um, uh, a Sharpay that was, uh, it was in a, like it was in a crime, so it can't be adopted out. Mm. So I sometimes take dogs that are evidence in a crime so that they can't be, you know, taken back, like exotic animals, so exotic. And this is also part of the reason that I've learned so much about the exotic animal trade and it's, I wish it, my nightmares on no one, but usually when there's, you know, uh, lions, tigers, bears being trafficked, there's also a lot of exotic dogs. Like this yeah. was an albino Sharpay, I got a pharaoh dog. Um, and then often 
this is the main, 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 main reason that I have no compassion for animal abusers is because um, anyone who's abusing an animal is almost always, uh, there's no chance that sure. they don't go inside, They're, kick a dog, not the, hit their kid right. or their wife or whatever. So the dog or the animal is just the socially acceptable type, type of abuse. Like when you go in the door, it's gonna you know continue. And also when people ex um, traffic exotic animals, humans are always in the truck as well. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, if you see a tiger in someone's backyard, chances are there's, other weird something stuff going else on. going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it's like just it's all the same stuff. Yeah. It's it's arms dealers, uh, traffickers, psychopaths. You know, animals, mm -hmm. the whole deal. So it's right. like it's pretty. It gets pretty dark pretty quick. Yeah, and I'm like, it's kind of my dream to just like hunt these people, because <laughs> there's yeah. something. I, 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 but that's a superpower I have. I mm -hmm. am not scared of the things most people are scared of. Mm -hmm. I'm scared of like eye contact. Being like Damian Mander. Do you know Damian Mander? No. Oh, we'll talk afterwards. But he he was a special forces dude who had a lot of trauma from you know being in combat, et cetera. And, you know, basically became aware of what was going on with exotic animal trade in parts of Africa. And he was like, fuck these guys. And he basically went there with all of his skills and was like, I'm gonna end this problem. And now he's created this militia that's all women. I think it's called the Akasha. There's a little documentary about it. I'll mm -hmm. send it to you um, to really kind of police poaching in their native territories. And he did an unbelievable I know TED him. talk. Do you know what I'm talking I about? I know him. Yeah. And the tricky part about that is like, it's really is like, we can go stop the bleeding, stop the bleeding, but until we talk to you the government. Create the and the demand. And, yeah. and the demand and also governments there actually give you, a lot of it is a nuisance. You know, there was an amazing article that a woman, an African woman wrote, I think it was about, remember when that guy shot that lion? Which guy? <laughs> Lots of guys shoot lions. Like, I mean, it was like famous. He was um, like, he was whole, He was like a politician or something. He shot right. a lion and it kind of went viral and mm -hmm. people started talking about trophy hunting for two seconds, yeah, yeah. you know? And a lot of people, um, you know, don't understand that lions are a very real nuisance in Africa. <laughs> and a woman wrote a piece that said, why we don't cry for lions. You know, mm. because every time our kids leave the house, we worry about them. So I'm the first person. I have coyote dens all over my property. And, you know, I have, you know, a little water station for them. They have everything they need, but if they come for my animal, they're, it's a wrap, you know? Mm -hmm. So to, if, you're, if you're in America and you're like, who, what's the one animal that you'd kind of be fine with us? I'd be like, coyotes, dude. Fuck those things, you know, because they are not wired. Uh, they are well not wired to attune to us, to serve us, nothing. And I know if it's between me going here, little, and killing my dog, they'll kill it, you know. Mm -hmm. So they also see it as that I'm not killing a lion. I'm just protecting my children, and you can't get between that, mm -hmm. you know. And so it's like, you know, it's really about changing laws, kind of the more boring stuff of going and going like, why are these poachers getting like a stipend for doing this? Why are they getting tax breaks for doing this? Oh, because it makes it easy for you guys to spend less taxes on cleaning up right. all the crop destruction or the police force we have to hire to deal with this or whatever, you know, it's solving a problem for them in some, mm -hmm. in some way. And then also why don't you have the kind of economy where these people can actually have jobs that doesn't include this? Well, that's the big thing. If yeah. there was a better option for they these would people take it. as well. They would take course. it. So I'm always thinking, how do we horse carriage people? It's like, these people have been doing this for 30 years. They own this horse. You're just take their, you know, like yeah. you're taking their livelihood from them. Right. We have to replace the livelihood. So it's not now their only option in right. life. So that's like, the kind of activism that actually gets stuff done yeah. instead of just like, fuck you, and then moving on with your day. Like that yeah. just makes people think animal people are crazy. Thanks for that. So I know you loved my 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 segue, my transition, but then I don't feel like we we segued into it. <laughs> 
Wait, what was it? I thought we, you wanted to talk about comedy. Shit. No, so because we got to get out of here. Uh, I know, but I don't want to. I want to end it. Longest? I, I know. I'm I think it might be. No, I think we did. I did a four-hour one once, but we're getting close to that. Because um, I think good. I was trying to go to like horses really help you look in the mirror. Well, I think the idea was yeah, like like just the journey of of self healing mm-hmm. and like becoming an integrated whole person and how that actually allows you uh, to flourish in mm-hmm. a way that feels antithetical to what you might think it is. And to kind of like maybe round this out with some thoughts on on that, because I think people are really afraid, A, it's scary to tackle the things that you don't wanna look at in yourself. And there is that fear that if you do that, um, then you're gonna be this different person and you're gonna lose whatever it is that you feel like makes you, you, and allows you to do you in the world. Like I'm gonna lose what makes me a cocaine addict. And what would possibly, <laughs> right? God forbid I change any of this precious programming. Um, just something real quick uh, that you said about, you know, looking at yourself and then accepting it, et cetera. And something uh, that is a miracle about 12-step programs that will get into comedy. 12-step programs really taught me, say the most disgusting thing you thought to do today and you will destroy in this room, Mm -hmm. you know? So also that practice of telling someone your deepest, darkest secret, telling someone I just did cocaine 400, you know, grams of it last week or whatever, and they still hang out with you. Right, (laughs) yeah. So you have the data of like, I can, acknowledge all these parts of myself and people won't leave. They won't think I'm disgusting. They won't think I'm trash, you know? And then to go on stage and talk about it, have people laugh and then pay you is the ultimate way to sort of heal all that shame Mm. about your thoughts and the way it's like, I can use this for something, you know? And that's how I took, God, sorry, like my power back, you know? I was like, wait a second, maybe all of the worst things about me will like help other people, talking about it will like help other people, you know? Mm -hmm. And it forces me to tell the truth because I came from an environment where it was just like, everything was a lie. I'm I'm five minutes out, you're not. You are an hour away Mm -hmm. and uh, we're jumping in the shower. No, you're not. Little lies, big lies, all of it. And you can't lie to an audience whose reaction is involuntary. You know, you can perform for your own fans and get clapped and stuff, but everyone knows what that is. You know, you get a, because as someone that was so obsessed with dishonest feedback, no, you look great, no, I'm fine. Like. I only believe in involuntary reaction. So if someone laughs or doesn't laugh, they're right. Mm. You know, and that is a, that is very. And that's something you really can't fake. That makes me feel so. I can fake a couple other things, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> but uh, it's really soothing to just be able to believe everyone. To just believe what like no one's kissing your ass. No one like it's just. Great, everything you guys just did, whether I liked it or not is true. Mm -hmm. And that is like the best feeling in the world, but you also have to tell the truth. You know, and I think that after I spent time, you know, with animals my whole life and learning like truth is the most important way that you can maintain self-esteem is just telling the truth, the absence of secrets. So we always say, you know, like we're only as sick as the secrets we keep. It took me so long to take that adage seriously. And I cannot believe how it changed my life. Mm. It was like uh, taking steroids or something. It was just like, I was twice as successful. I was twice as happy in my relationships. People liked me twice as much just because I was like telling the truth mm-hmm. and not in a, trying to, um, not patronizing them with lies because they can't handle that I'm gonna be late. They'll be fine. They'll look at their phone, whatever. And next time leave 15 minutes earlier, mm-hmm. you fucking selfish brat. Um, and so, 
it felt like kind of a natural sort of projection there. I think for me, however, being a stand-up comedian, I'm gonna be really honest, I think that a lot of it came, was my wiring. And then some things that I guess you would maybe categorize as traumas in terms of, I was alone so much, you know? Mm -hmm. And when someone was around, you had to make them laugh right away to keep their attention. Yeah. You know, if they're drinking, they're socializing, they're, they're com doing compulsive behaviors, like you bet you have, a minute to get this person's attention or to get this laugh or this is your only opportunity to get some self-esteem today or be seen, you know, and you got to move fast. Also, I think that I'm not going to be the person to spearhead this, but our names are a big part of why we are who we are, what we're named, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, your name is Rich. Right. That worked out. Yeah, Rich Roll, <laughs> Rock and Roll, Dick Roll. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> like, and then my mom's maiden name is Spindle, and and uh, did she come from? And Zoe? her brother was Dick Spindle. What? Hello. Dick Spindle. Yeah. How about that? Your uncle should have married Whitney Cummings. Well, I could have if we got married and I took your name, it would be Dick Cummings. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, I'll do you one better? <laughs> my parents. Before they got married, my mom's last name was Cumming and his is Cummings. Mm -hmm. She was Patty Cumming Cummings. No way. So had I taken her last name, you'd be Dick Cumming, which is even better because it's the verb, not the noun. Yeah, that's better. But this thing I was always so embarrassed about, I didn't realize you know, that it was uh -huh. funny until much later, but I was made fun of constantly. I mean, it's just like the best way to bully someone, you know? Mm -hmm. Whitney, come in your mouth, come on your face. I would get my like test papers back in school where my name, Whitney Cummings, someone scribbled it out, C-U-M on your mouth, in your face. Like it was just yeah. constant. So I had to find a way to joke about it. I had to find a way to uh, embarrass myself first, to own the bullying, you know, to make fun of myself because I know they're gonna make fun of this name. So I think that your name has a really big part of your character in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I think a lot of really successful people have really, complicated names. Have you noticed that? Because they've Not had really. to constantly correct people. They've had to, con this is a theory I'm working on. Please tell me if I'm wrong. But when you see those people that are like, hi, my name is Aardvark McMandeswan. And you're like, <laughs> Aardvark? No, it's Aardvark. Like you have to claim your space. You have to stand up. You have to make sure, you know, you develop confidence that mm -hmm. way, you know? And so, you know, I think my name definitely got me, uh, thinking in terms of you better be funny all the time. You better think yeah. fast. Well, it sounds like your dad was funny and always was <laughs> wanting to engage with you on that. My dad was so funny. He would pick me up from school and would usually be late, but didn't matter. Um, later, uh, he would, um, I don't know if you ever saw um, Three Amigos. I mean, forever ago. The movie? I wouldn't remember. It's one I of mean, my- I just have the visual image of those guys sitting around a campfire. <laughs> uh, night, Ned. What? <laughs> That's what he said. Good night, Ned. I don't even The bat said it. Yeah. I don't but remember. there was um uh, a moment where it was Steve Martin was up on a billboard and they were trying to do some furtive heist and uh, uh Martin Short and Chevy Chase were looking for him and couldn't find him and Steve Martin goes, "Look up here." Look up here. Like he was trying to be discreet about it. Yeah. And it's such a dumb moment. And he's like, look up here, look up here. Look, trying to do bird sounds to get him to look. And then finally he goes, hey guys, like it's so stupid. But I knew my dad was there because I would just hear, look up here, look up. And my dad, I didn't know where he was. He'd be like hiding behind a car, mm. you know? He's just like, every moment was an opportunity to make people laugh, every single moment. He just, he he didn't understand the point of engaging with someone if you weren't asking them questions about themselves. Or he always said to me, he's like, there's no point in ever, 
disliking anyone. If you don't like someone, it just means you haven't asked them enough questions about mm. themselves. You know, and he always said, it was annoying when I was a kid, but now it's, it's served me so well. Anyone he would meet, where are you from, man? Oh, Cincinnati. Oh yeah, down on the, and then I, I don't even know if he'd been to all these places or not, but he would always be like, what's the best, what's that burrito place? And they'd be like, ah, mama's burritos. Yeah. Yes. Like he would just- Always trying to connect. Always trying to make people's day. And it was always people that, you know, waitresses, janitors, whatever, you know. And um, I didn't even realize what a gift that was, but something that he used to do to me, and I think that I didn't realize this until very recently. The pandemic, I had a couple, you know, thank God that wasn't totally wasted. I had a couple breakthroughs in terms of going, I'm gonna radically forgive my parents. Let me just turn everything into a positive. And I remember this is the way we used to study. So he would, um, have the textbook, I'm trying to really talk fast. Uh, he would have a textbook and he would say, okay, say all the, uh, the date of the Civil War, the date uh, Amer the American Indians you know, came over. They were called that then, you know, the date of the Spanish-American War, the date of the da 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 and, what, and then I would have, like have it. So I had to say it backwards and forwards, Spanish-American War, date, um, Civil War, Spanish-American War. You know, like he mm -hmm. would throw mm -hmm. me curveballs and stuff like that. And then he closed the book and then he'd go, I mean, how do we know the book is right? <laughs> I mean, there's no way this is all right. I mean, this was just some like hearsay, like some guy was like, hey, I think the Civil War started. Like, a pro And then he would basically say, question everything. Mm -hmm. You need to learn it all to pass the test, but question all of this. Wow. You know, and so I think that's part of what formed me in right. terms of being which a comedian. Is, which is really the comedian's mantra, right? Question everything and, yeah. and I have this. You have this obsession with human psychology and justice. human behavior and all of that too. And yeah. in t it, we we can't stop until something makes sense, you know. And I think it's very much like trying to figure out what people meant when we were young. We had to. We everything had to add up. You know, Neil Brennan always says it's an obsession with justice, which I think is a great way to look at it. Um, and I always like to say that comedians say something that isn't true, and then they prove it. Mm. Comedians say something that isn't true and then prove it. Mm -hmm. With jokes. Right. So, you know, and then also it's like, like a, you're a lawyer basically. You're defending a criminal idea. You right. know, you're like, you. we, yeah. should, we should do rehab for pedophiles. Right. Hear me out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Joke, 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 joke. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a bit my last special where it's like, I think we need to get rid of ballet. Ballet's bad. Hear me out. And then I got to dig myself out of the hole with the jokes, that, the things you haven't heard of, yeah, yeah. you know, and then I have to defend my point, which is the most fun thing in the world. Having someone go, that's a ridiculous idea. I'm never going to side with you. And then just slowly like get them to change their minds. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's what's so fun about stand up is like you get to get like someone to think critically about something that they maybe have never thought about before. You know, I think the great comedians do that. Mm -hmm. They get you to look at something that you sure. take for granted completely differently. Right. Question everything. Yeah, question everything. Memorize the textbook first, then question everything. Do you think anything we learned in school is true? I mean, I was with my niece, she's 15. I don't know. She, we were doing her homework. I was like- I don't remember I didn't know, oh they, erased, oh, they erased that. Okay, good, they realized <laughs> yeah. that was, I mean, I'm like, when I was a kid, I learned that the Native Americans and the pilgrims had a wonderful meal together. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was, they, that was the extent of they it. They had a party, they wore the buckle shoes. Like they, they had a great time. They had a, a mm -hmm. plethora, what is it, panoply? Uh, cornucopia. cornucopia. The plenty, the horn of plenty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. They just hung out. They traded blankets. It seemed like everything was fine, you know. So it's, yeah. you know, who knows? But but I'm so grateful for that. And that's some. I remember 
people saying like, why is your dad make it, like making you, cha-? like it, it, at the time I thought it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm the kid in school going like, yeah, but was that really true? But like, are you sure it happened that way? And I was seemed annoying and crazy, right. you know? But it was like, okay, this is the only profession I can really do. Yeah. Cause I get, so, my OCD gets so intense. I think about something so intensely, you know, Louis CK always says, if you think about something more than three times a week, you gotta just write about it. Right. Well, I wanna get into like how the writing process works and how that all happens, but we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to do that on a different day. We have to stay you, yeah. tuned. We're now we're now like well into longest podcast ever. You're terrain now a territory. podcaster. Yeah, which I'm good with. <laughs> I'm the ultra endurance athlete. I'm cool with all of it. Um, I need but, a, a cold plunge. Yeah, I know. Blush, really quick, can I just ask well. you really quick, sure. the supplements you take on a daily basis. Oh, geez. I mean, it varies. I mean, I take athletic greens. I take- Promo code Whitney. Uh, yeah, I take, uh, I take vitamin D, I take B12. Um, but if you're gonna spirulina. be outside in the sun, do you still take vitamin D? I do, uh, my D levels are fine, but from what I understand, even being out in the sun a lot, you can still be deficient. Most people are vitamin D deficient. You gotta sun your butthole. Yeah, oh, right. What is it called? I don't know. Perineum sunning? Perineum. Per, per, the perineum Perineum Are you sunning. into that? No. <laughs> All right, we're going off the rails. We got I know, I know, I just was dying to know. Thank yeah. you for having cool. me. Cool, thank you. Wonderful to finally meet you. That was super fun. What a pleasure. Sorry yeah. I kept you guys so long. No, come back and do it again sometime. Um, check out Whitney's podcast, Good For You. The new, uh, the new special is called Jokes, it's on Netflix. No politics. No politics, yes, appeals to everyone. I just, I, it's yeah. our job to bring people we together. We talk about your special or anything. I feel bad. Why, what, what happened here? Mm. Is this bad? No. I feel like you're, what do you how mean? we do, just, you decide. Really? Giselle, Giselle likes it. I'm really happy. Okay. I wanted to talk about mental health. That's what we talked about. How do you feel? Honestly, it's good. I don't have feelings. You don't? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm gonna look to you to decide okay. how I should feel. No, I I feel like we were honest and, pre- and not rushing to get to anything. No, you know, it was good. I think it was the best. Do people kind really of care about comedy? People hate us now. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> no, we need you. We need you more than ever. Um, but we should get to that. Yeah, maybe next time because I do think everyone should do stand up at some point, even if they only do it once. Even yeah. if you just set up a little room at your office and do it with some coworkers, it will change your life. Yeah, it's very scary. If somebody said you can go skydiving <laughs> or get up and do stand up, it's that's a toss up for me. No way. Yeah, for sure. See, that is fascinating yeah, to me. Well, I, that's why I think everyone should do it once. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be surprised. Yeah, cool. it's like a great thrill, and you learn so much about yourself. And mm-hmm. everyone needs to be public speaking now, whether you're given presentations, any field you're yeah, in. Yeah, it's a skill yeah, that yeah. I think if everyone had, they'd be a little less cool. anxious all the time. All right, well, we'll explore that more next time. Cheers, thanks Whitney. And, unless you're a uh, younger, prettier girl than me, please don't start stand up. Because <laughs> no, I'm already terrified. Please. Nip it at my heels. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. 
Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.